0: You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG, it's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 583. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 30th of August, 2023. Today's episode, a twin-engine otter veers off a runway in Guadalupe and hits a parked helicopter. A battery-packed fire forces air friends' flight attendants to don smoke hoods to extinguish the flames. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale when history repeats itself. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 583 is ready for pushback.
1: Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and joining us today from his studio,
2: in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire.
1: Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330 A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick.
3: Oh, lovely to be with you again, Jeff. Looking forward to a fantastic show as usual. And wow, I've done a plane tail.
1: Yay! <laughs> Can't wait. All right. And also joining us from his home studio in the Air Capital, low and slow pilot, AMP mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry, it's Nick Camacho. Hey, Captain Jeff. Glad to uh, be able to join you guys again this week. Great to have you with us, uh, Nick. And also joining us... From her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hello,
4: everyone.
1: Hello. Uh, Glad to see everybody here. Now we're missing um, a couple of our hosts, but uh, yeah, we have more than we had last week, so we're getting better.
0: Have a good show, you guys.
1: Well, thanks, Liz. We'll uh, be hearing you in our ears. And uh, let's go and do some aviation news.
2: Stand by for news.
1: All righty. The first Item in our news segment is from the Aviation Safety Network. Uh, this involves, as it was teased by Radio Roger in the intro, a uh, DH6 Twin Otter 400 in uh, what did he say? Guadeloupe, um, uh, Saint Saint Barts. That's yeah, okay. That's the little uh, town where the airport's located. Uh, air oh, it is Saint Barts is the island. Okay. Oh, Guadalupe is a town. Ah, okay.
3: Funny enough, when you say St. Bart's, uh, those of us in England, particularly down south, immediately think of St. Bartholomew's Hospital in the middle of London, a
1: famous London hospital. Oh, well.
3: As long as you didn't crash there, that's fine.
1: Thank goodness, yes. Yes. Um, It would have been a lot more casualties, I think. Uh, This is... um, this airplane, this uh, Twin Otter was being um, flown by Air Antilles, uh, flight number five, no, 3S722, let's just say 722, a Twin Otter, veered off the left side of runway 28 on landing at St. Bart's Airport and struck a parked Eurocopter AS350 uh, helicopter and uh, Foxtrot Hotel Mike Yankee Lima, the uh, helicopter, had landed at 1513 UTC following a flight from, oh boy, uh, Anguilla-Walblake Airport, AXA. No one was on board the helicopter. Anguilla? Really? Oh, okay, that's an interesting, I would never have pronounced it uh, that way, Anguilla uh, Airport. And uh, no one was on board the helicopter at the time of the accident. And uh, so let me play this video. Um, it's quite interesting. um here we go. So this is a security camera video. And I don't believe there, there's any sound to this. So we see the helicopter that we uh, were just talking about, that Eurocopter. Sitting there and, all uh, innocent. Just innocently. Oh, wait. Oh, what <laughs> the that. heck happened? Oh. Uh, that hmm, I don't know. She's not on the show today for some reason. I can't
3: see Steph climbing out. So no, she's just sitting there um, with so, her head down.
1: This guy is walking near the nearest parked car, and he's and he like, oh, what's going on here? Let me take a picture. Um, so uh, let's see. I think this um, continues on. We'll just con- – yeah, let's uh, back it up and see it again. Okay.
3: I'd like to see it half a dozen times, please.
1: All right. Well, let's just see it at least one more time. Uh, but there's some other stuff in this video that I want to uh, cover. There we go. Oh, bam. Okay, you're you're probably asking, well, what is that helicopter doing on the runway? <laughs> well, it wasn't the runway. <laughs> that was a taxiway. And uh, they say that the um, Twin Otter landed and then shortly after touchdown veered left and uh, into the uh, area where the helicopter was parked. I don't know. Maybe he was just trying to save some time, go directly to the gate instead of worrying about slowing <laughs> the airplane down. Okay, so here's a uh, an overview of the uh, flight path. Uh, so I'm going to advance the video to something that... Okay, so right now, when I first saw this, I, I can't tell right now if this is real or if this is like um, AI or simulated or something like that, but I think it's actual security camera video. And um, right now, I have it frozen in the upper... Um, or on the right side, maybe the top, um, about the two-thirds point or so, is the uh, is the airplane, whether it's the real thing or a um, uh, simulation. I think it's the real thing, though, and I'll, I'll tell you why here. I think that here in a minute. Okay, so it's coming in. It's in kind of a turning left uh, base to final. Okay, you can see – I don't know. Can you see the airplane there? Yep, yeah. It's right against the uh, mountains. Above that little lagoon right there, and it's coming in. Wow, it's flying over the lagoon or whatever you call that area, and um, it's getting lower and lower. And in the on the far left part of the screen, that's where the uh, beginning of the runway is. So he's pretty low right here, really, really, really low. And then touches down. Yeah. So I'm thinking, if this were like a simulation, then why would they have cut? That's wonderful, Nick. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Why would they have cut it like right there and not shown the whole entire landing sequence and everything else? So I'm thinking that's why I think this is actual uh, footage from a security uh, webcam. So yeah. anyway, I just wanted you to could I probably wanted to go play
3: to that website, some live webcam, and see ah, if it's actually there or not. Yes.
1: That would have been a good thing to do, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I'll do that while you guys. Uh, Discuss this like what do you think happened here
3: oh what, why do people run off the runway i don't know i'm <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure uh uh nick's gonna uh gonna have a better idea of what might have gone wrong with a twin otter I, if it was a big airplane i'd i'd be able to st- take a stab at it but i don't know well, what do you reckon to, Nick? to be honest with you
5: I, I was a little uh confused or uh not confused but surprised I guess when I saw this article so for people who aren't seeing the video if you watch very many like if you're ever um on the internet and you're watching like youtube videos or anything about craziest airports you've probably seen this airport this airport is is known is known for being a really challenging airport to fly in because it's got a really short runway there's water directly at one end of the runway like directly at the end of the runway and then on the other side there's a pretty significant Incline, yeah, like a hill that's got to cut out between two mountains. And so, uh, you know, there are videos floating all over the internet of people trying to get their airplane down in here. I think I looked it up. The runway is uh, 2,100 feet, which is really short for a yeah. twin, a turbo pop, turboprop twin engine airplane. Um, and so I figured, um, you know, you see these videos of the guys coming over a road on the hill. Um, and they're only 5 or 10 feet over the ground, and they're basically like following an earth profile down their approach track as they get to the airport. What surprised me is this guy was going the other direction. (laughs) So you would think that it would have been a uh, much less challenging approach because he could um, kind of craft his um, approach and his uh, descent profile over the water as conservative as he wanted and kind of even dragged it in to be in a really good spot. So that, that was the thing that got me was when I heard uh St. Bart's an issue at St. Bart's, I was like, Oh man, somebody probably ran another airplane off the end, but this guy was going the other direction. So I, I don't have a good idea either uh, of what would cause it, but he is, uh, you know, you look at that video and he's, he's way off the runway. I mean, there's a pretty decent, uh, step over from that, uh, taxiway, and then a large area of grass, and then to the, or I'm sorry, the runway, large area of grass, and then taxiway. So uh, he definitely got himself in quite a bit of trouble there.
1: Yep. And this, uh, we're I'm sharing the screen with you all right now. And this is the um, the security uh, camera, the St. Jean Bay cam. Oh, ah, yeah. So uh, it and it's like live. Like so that's exactly January what we were seeing right, yeah. before. So that was a real thing, not a simulation.
3: Yeah. Cool.
1: Almost like maybe the the left brake was, you know, dragging somehow and just immediately flung them off to the well, left. Or maybe,
5: you know, he, when he, I assume at 2,000 feet, they're using full reverse and all the brakes and everything. Maybe they had an issue mm-hmm. with a propeller and one engine created power and one engine didn't or one oh, propeller yeah. went into reverse and one didn't or something like that. I mean, there are multiple mechanical scenarios that would make it difficult to keep it on the runway.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Elspilato uh, is um, talking about a titler and uh, I'm not sure that this show, is appropriate and for,
0: family show.
1: for us to, Oh, a tiller. I'm sorry. He, I think it was a misspelling there. Um, isn't the tiller on the yoke and it sticks out a bit like an indicator. Pilots have been known to accidentally hit it on landing. Oh yeah. It's too bad we don't have Steph with us because she'd be able to tell us Yes, it does. <laughs> the tiller <laughs> never always does, right does stick out at yeah, the long time. It's not yeah.
3: like the wind was anything dramatic—eight knots. No, um, from you know, no no. But also, I, I have I have zero experience
5: flying airplanes with tillers. But also, no, isn't there some logic involved where, um, I mean, the tiller wouldn't be active the minute the nose wheel touches the ground, would it? Even if oh, he's it going, is, it is on every okay. airplane
1: I've flown. Yeah, that's why you don't want to hold on to the tiller when you're landing. (laughs) Okay, you want to wait until you've slowed down quite a bit and you're in that transition from the high speed to low speed uh, landing rollout before you actually put your hand on the tiller, because you could be in for a wild ride, right, uh, Captain Nick?
3: Uh, Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, Luckily they're nicely tucked away normally.
1: Yeah.
3: Apparently not on the water. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the Airbus though probably has some advanced logic where it's not actually active until a certain point. I don't know. I'm surprised uh, that uh, Nick didn't share so. that with us. No, okay. But every airplane that I've flown that I've actually been in a, the position to actually touch the tiller hmm. um, <laughs> it has uh, it's been active. You know the uh, okay. you know all the time.
5: Yeah. And at higher speeds, I would assume you'd have enough rudder authority to. Yeah. overcome the nose that's wheel what you want to do
1: well no i don't know if you could over it no i would say no so it will, the, tiller, the tiller if, if the nose wheels on the ground um the tiller is gonna uh, i don't think you'll be able to override the tiller with uh aerodynamic rudder okay. um control i mean that's just a guess on my part i've never tried it and i never intend to <laughs> yeah. actually
3: yeah i know i don't know people have <laughs> experimented with that yeah
1: we'll just leave that alone All right. Well, um, hopefully we'll get some more information on this. uh, And if we get any more information, we'll definitely talk about it, unless it's super boring and we don't want to spend our time on it. Okay. Uh, Let's see. The next item here is from uh, the Aviation Herald. An an Emirates Airbus A380-800 registration Echo Oscar Mike, Alpha 6 Echo Oscar Mike, performing Flight 77 from Dubai to nice uh, concluded a seemingly uneventful flight with a safe landing on nice's runway 4 left a post flight inspection revealed damage to at least one of the right hand slats that needed to be replaced the aircraft is still on the ground in nice about seven this was i don't know several days ago when this uh occurred so about a week ago actually so i'm not sure if it's still on the ground in nice but at the time that simon was writing this uh, it was um on the 23rd of August, the French BEA reported that the crew was selecting CONF-1, I guess that's Configuration 1 or Flaps yeah, config one. 1, Okay, uh, extending first stage of slats and flaps, when the crew heard an unusual noise and felt vibrations. The aircraft continued for a landing without further incident. Post-flight examination revealed damage to the number two slat of the right-hand wing. Which had sustained substantial damage. The occurrence was rated an accident. and It's being investigated by the French BEA, and the reason why they're calling it an accident, I believe, is probably the the value, the damage uh, value, was exceeded a certain threshold. Um, and then this other article here from the Avi- no, Actually, I'm going to skip that one and go to the Aviation Safety Network uh it's understood that the bea the aircraft accident investigators in france are looking into this incident which has caused damage to the uh, emirates a380 in nice at the time of writing they hadn't been able to confirm the occurrence of a drone or whether something else has caused this damage to the jet but indications are suggesting it is a drone collision with the jet if it is a drone. Then there could be criminal penalties assigned to this as drone usage around airports is typically prohibited, especially in France. What do you mean especially in France? It's prohibited everywhere, I think. (laughs)
3: Yes, Um, indeed.
1: uh, If it is a drone. (laughs) uh, Oh, it says extra, extra prohibitions. Okay. If it's a drone, then there could be criminal penalties assigned to this as drone usage around airports is typically prohibited. Oh, I just read that. At this stage, all eyes will be on the BEA to see whether they can establish the cause of this damage and if a drone is involved and who the owner of it actually is. Okay. Didn't we just say that in an earlier sentence? I think we did. Um, But for now, whilst the possibility of a drone is still valid, all eyes will be on the BEA and its reports to establish the overall cause. Okay. What is it? is it there? Is there like a certain requirement that you have to have a certain number of words in a in a in an article? Yeah, so his editor
3: was saying, "Look, look, bulk it out a bit."
1: <laughs> yeah, warm. let's see. Let's use a chat GPT. Okay, this is what I want to say. This phrase here. Yeah. And now, give me like five different ways to say it, please, and then <laughs> spits it out. Copy paste. Boom. We you have, have an
3: article. journalists, don't we?
1: Oh my God! Come on, you could have said all of this in one sentence, maybe two. Anyway, sorry. my little pet peeve <laughs> thing going on there. Sorry. Yeah, let me get to that. Uh, see if I can find it. Uh, usually it take too long to do that. So, yeah, I'm just going to go. Oh, that's a beer pour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, uh, the
5: opposite is Jeff's pet peeve. Jeff's pet
0: peeve.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just hit J on my keyboard, hoping that it would be Jeff's pet peeve. But, it, no, it's. How do you Jack get pouring beer? J for beer? Well, it, it's a long story how, how this <laughs> soundboard <laughs> works. It, it's, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Anywho, um, anything else to say about that? I mean...
3: Well, I'm trying to work out how an impact caused that kind of damage. Because when you look at this slat they've... Re- sorry, this leading edge, yeah, slat they've removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like the top edge uh, of the slat because you're looking at it this the rounded portion on the right uh, indicates that it's uh, that's the front of it so it's the back end of the slat is having the problem um and it, it's wrinkled a bit in places so i'm assuming it had this perhaps on retraction but uh i'm trying to work out how you get that damage from impact with a drone right because right? it looks to me like uh, it's it's uh, had a problem retracting smoothly. Yeah, it it's almost looks like somebody some left a tool in is, there. Yeah, and which is fold the surface of the slat up and mm-hmm. uh, caused that. So I'm a bit confused as to how that happened, but there
1: you go. Yeah, I agree doesn't seem to make sense because that would look okay it would tilt down right so from the perspective Indeed. that we're seeing it it would be it would like rotate from the bottom to the top so it, um, the, the that would be like the trailing edge of the slat on the top where yeah. that damage has occurred yeah, yeah I agree with you I mean how do you and it's 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 all the uh, tearing of the metal is outward not inward.
3: Yeah, exactly. So I can see how a drone might have hit that portion of it because the slat goes forward and down. Yeah. So that is now presented to the airflow that portion. So something could hit it, but, but, pardon me, how it hit it on extension, I don't know because that's when they said they felt the vibration on extension. Well, that's the other thing I was going to mention is
5: you know it could be coincidental that they got hit right when they were extending the slats, but that first news article did say they were selecting that configuration position and heard the unusual noise and vibration which seems mm-hmm. like exactly right. could also seems possibly unusual. be a mechanical issue internal to the airplane. yeah
1: i think that seems yeah. to be a more likely
3: yeah the drone this. theory i'm not too sure about yeah so i'm
1: thinking <laughs> i'm thinking that somebody went okay let's say that we hit a drone
3: yeah, yeah blame it on a drone yeah they'll buy it Yeah. <laughs> indeed but okay
1: All right. Um, Let's move on with this next item. Um, It uh, it involves a regional jet, an in-flight emergency um, involving smoke and fumes, or maybe just fumes, no smoke. We're not really sure at this point. Um, And it, it diverts into... An airport. Uh, If you uh, listen to another um, aviation podcast.
3: Aviation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, of universe. course. Everybody.
1: Yes, the the best. Yes. Uni- no, I think I just claim the uh, best on in this world. Oh, okay. they are not making any dibs on any other planet. They keep saying universe. that they made it
5: back up to the top of the chart, which
1: means at some point they've got to not be the best.
5: Also. Oh right? yeah. Well, oh, I didn't say true. they have okay. been from
1: the you know right out of the shoot. I mean, uh, but you know. Anyway, I'm not even competing <laughs> with them anymore. I mean, it's not even worth trying. <laughs> um, so, um, but anyway, so this uh, you'll you'll hear a voice here um, at this particular airport, the uh, Triad, Piedmont Triad, and you might recognize the voice, um, not the first air traffic controller, but the second one. So, we're going to go ahead and uh, play. This is from, Bleep uh, Bass Aviation.
4: Greensboro Approach, merge aircraft Piedmont Six Zero Zero Seven. One zero ten thousand on the heading three three zero mercy
2: aircraft. six thousand seven Greensboro approach. Altimeters two nine nine nine, 9. our information golf current weather's better than five thousand and five, wind zero nine or zero at four. Descend it pilots discretion, maintain at three thousand.
1: First of all, I'm gonna pause. Thank you for telling him what the ADIS information is, but not requiring them to go get it and report that they have it. They went ahead and just gave the important information. Uh, right over the radio frequency. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
4: All right, 2999 and down to 3000 now, Piedmont 6007.
2: Piedmont 6007, you can expect runway five right unless otherwise requested. You plan to uh, land and exit the runway?
4: Hey, Affirm, well, we'll expect five right, we
2: expect to land and exit the runway. And again, confirm down to what altitude? Piedmont 6007, descend at pilot discretion, maintain 3000. And uh, I understand you're also uh, non-oxygen in the cockpit? So uh, The only thing I wasn't sure on in your, in your emergency, sir, was whether you were uh, running on oxygen or not in the cockpit, sir.
1: <laughs> Pausing again. Yeah, they're a little confused. Like, wait, who's who's running my emergency checklist here?
3: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so, an old question to ask. I've never heard that before.
1: <laughs> I never have either. But uh, anyway, so uh, let's move on. And I'm not sure what his response was, actually.
2: c 6007 can you clarify fumes or smoke in the cockpit for us?
1: fumes. <laughs> fumes. Roger, thank
2: you, apart. Well, I suppose you can see smoke. <laughs> now you can see the smoke. c 6007 yeah. can you confirm? Uh, actually, I'll just go ahead and do it. You're cleared to Greensboro via radar vectors heading 330. Sorry for all the talk. C-Mont-6007, can you confirm? No problem, sir. I figured as much. Okay, four.
6: Uh, 39 souls on board. Embryo 145.
1: Okay, pausing. Um, now, that's the second controller's voice, which we may all be familiar with. Uh, that was actually a different frequency. So we're uh, this compilation of um, audio uh, is recording um, and presenting, playing from different sources. So that first... Initial um, contact and the uh, first controller was on approach control. And this is the uh, tower frequency where we hear uh, somebody that we kind of know uh, talking to the um, the fire and rescue, um, the ARF team, uh, Smokey 4, on the ground. ARF, ARF. 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 And
6: 3,900 pounds of fuel on board. The... Emergency. is fumes in the cockpit, I don't have a confirmation that there's no smoke, uh, but we're going to treat it as if it's smoke at this point. Smokey 4, Roger. Thank you, sir. Smoky also, four. all smoke units are going to be in standby location. Smokey 4 is going to be
2: your ground contact. Wow. All right. Thank you, Smokey 4. He's the ideal
3: man if there's smoke in the cockpit.
2: Piedmont, 6007. Greensboro is 2 o'clock, 1-5 miles. Uh,
6: we do not have it in sight for Piedmont, 6007.
2: Sorry, Piedmont. I had someone in my ears. You say you had it or do not?
6: We, we don't have it, Piedmont 6007.
2: i right, I'll give you a vector on the final. Join the localizer. Thank you.
4: And approach. Can you read those? Uh, that us to us one more time. There, two triple nine on the altimeter.
2: Piedmont 6007 uh, Greensboro uh, observation zero zero five four Zulu wind zero, 090 zero at four visibility and uh, I'm sorry, weather's better than five thousand and five. Temperature two six. Uh two point two zero and altimeters two nine niner, niner. Thank you. No problem. Piedmont six thousand seven turn right heading zero two zero join localizer runway five right.
3: Now, I don't know how accurate this is, but it seems to take him an awful long time. Piedmont six
2: thousand seven turn right heading zero two zero join localizer runway five right. Fields currently two o'clock, eleven miles. Alright,
4: zero two zero on the heading, and uh, join the localizer for Pemont uh, 6007 for 5 right. Pemont
2: 6007, you're one mile from Pagan, cleared ILS runway 5 right approach, contact tower 119.1. Alright,
6: uh, cleared ILS runway 5 right in uh, 119.9, Pemont 6007. Nope. 119.1, Too late. Looking for the next arrival, uh, you'll see his lights here in a minute. He's inbound from the southwest. The next arrival on five right is the emergency. Yeah,
1: okay, that's the tower okay, frequency. Roger, Piedmont should be on tower frequency.
6: Greensboro Tower way five right. Clear to land.
1: They're on 19-1. I mean, nineteen nine, 9
6: <laughs> Not 19-1. Nope. 607 well, Greensboro Tower, yep.
1: I'm assuming someone's
3: shining a green oldest. Piedmont line, 6007 anyway. came
2: back over In, in fact, they did. One.
3: Oh, good man. Good
6: man. Smokey 4, we're not in contact with the airplane. He's short final. That's the arrival there. Uh, we're having a hard time getting in touch with them. Smokey 4, Roger. I hear you calling him. Piedmont 6007, Greensboro Tower. Piedmont 6007, if you can hear me, you're cleared to land on runway 5, right?
1: They also have tried guard as well. On uh,
6: 6007, Piedmont 6007, are you up? Now kind of down. At 6,007 Greensboro ground.
4: Ground up, P-Mod 6,007, uh, 119
6: or decimal one. 6,007 Greensboro ground. The trucks are following you down the runway there. You can hold short a kilo if you want. Say your request. Do you want us to let you uh, let the people out?
4: Yeah, we're probably going to want to let these people out. I'm not sure exactly what the the uh, weather condition is in the back.
6: 6007 Roger, it's up to you. You can do it there or you can move up to the ramp. I'll leave it up to you. The trucks are following you. All
4: right, we're going to take it to the ramp. You got a spot.
6: 6007, move up, turn left adjacent to that te- as soon as you get into the ramp, turn left. You can do it on the grass there. Okay, 4. He is on 191. You can stay on this frequency 119.1 if you can switch over. Uh we're having some communication issues with the crew. They're working on the issue. They're going to let everybody out there at uh, their current position, um, they are stopped on the ramp. On sixty zero seven ground. Go ahead. I let them know you're stopped. They're on 21-9 uh, if you have a chance to change frequencies if you need to talk to them, but they're going to trigger you as if you're stopped right there letting them out.
4: Roger that. We'll go ahead and talk to them now on 21-9. Thank you.
1: And I believe that was the end of it, so let me go ahead and remove that. From our screen. Okay, I think it was a very well handled um, by both the pilot crew and the, uh, and the air traffic controllers. Now, there were several, you know, when you're when you're looking at the comments on YouTube, uh, there are a lot of people out there that really don't seem to know that much about aviation. um, And that spew stuff that, uh, you just have to disregard. I've always found it better. Just not, don't read the comments. <laughs> it's just very frustrating. But, uh, somebody, the, somebody was complaining about the fact that, oh, you know, like just the guy, that air traffic controller wouldn't shut up, wouldn't shut up. Well, I think that person doesn't understand is the fact that, uh, the communication that we heard from, uh, our friend, uh, was, on, wasn't on the uh, frequency that the uh, pilots were listening to. That was a separate frequency. They had not been told to switch over to that frequency uh, at at that point. Uh, they were just kind of trying to do some pre-coordination with the uh, ARFF crew, Smokey 4. Uh, but then at a certain point, uh, they did instruct them to switch to 19.1. They misread it, said 19.9, and the controller tried to correct him, but by then they'd already switched over to Nineteen nine, which is not a frequency in use at the uh, at the Piedmont Triad International Airport, so uh, and they they attempted to get back in touch with them. Um, I know from some uh, inside information that the uh, transmission on guard was made, you know, with to no avail, and uh, so and there were uh, light guns used in this situation just in case they just didn't have any radio communications at all. Yeehaw. Yeah, oh gun. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There we go. <laughs> um so uh yeah, I, the, the as we mentioned at the very beginning of this uh, and we we paused uh was like the the comment, the question made by that first um radar controller was like, you know, confirm that you're not on oxygen, like that Was just kind of an unusual thing I've never heard before, and uh, I guess it's because they were able to understand what they were saying. So, they, well, they must not have their oxygen masks on now. Maybe that was a com- conversation that was going on in the uh, in the radar room, you know, Tracon. Uh, and he just kind of said it over the frequency as well. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure why they would ask the pilot crew you know, if they were on oxygen or not. Um, now I could understand if they were suspecting that uh, a pilot is uh, experiencing hypoxia. And I've heard some radio communications like that in the past where they said, hey, yeah, are you on oxygen? Make sure you, you, know, you put that oxygen mask on. And, you know, and, and that's helped in some circumstances in the past where the pilot was suffering from a lack of oxygen. But in this case, this is a, uh, a smoke and fumes event. Now, one of the items on the smoke and fumes checklist is oxygen on 100%. Um, and uh, but we can't, we're not in their cockpit. We have no idea what's going on. Was it like a little whiff of something? and maybe uh, I, I get the impression that it was mostly happening in the back of the airplane, not in the cockpit itself. And so maybe they didn't think that they needed to be on oxygen masks because as as uh, Captain Nick can attest to, and I can as well. When I don't know if you've ever experienced this in in real operations, Nick, but I have experienced it in simulated operations in the simulator. When you put that darn oxygen mask on, I mean, it is like going from 100% awareness of everything that's happening around you, your essay is just awesome, to like maybe... 10, 20%. <laughs> I mean, it cuts oh, down. It, it's
3: uh, like you've put a set of blinkers on uh, for a start. So you seem to be having tunnel vision. You can only look directly where your head's Pointing and communication then becomes something of a nightmare because of the yes. noise that is created every time you breathe. Then you get this huge rush of oxygen into the mask that is going over the microphone. And uh, if you don't have uh, the microphone selected off, um, it, it's just deafening for everybody who's either listening on the radio or on. if you're using intercom between the two pilots, uh, has that Uh, turned on so yeah it it really is and it's a huge relief when eventually if you're just suffering a decompression so you've got oxygen on because of your altitude a huge relief when you get down below 10 you can take the damn mask off uh and start flying the airplane properly because up to that point you know you feel like you're fighting uh to understand what's going on you know a lot of your senses are really dulled down by having to wear this bloody octopus on your face Um, which is an odd thing for me to say because I spent half a flying career with big helmet on uh, visors and an oxygen mask except that that seems to be perfectly designed for the job whereas in the civvy world the emergency oxygen system just seems to be a very Heath Robinson piece of kit but uh, um, by the by it's what you have to you know you have to put up with what you've got you you use it but For their event, if they've got a a bad smell, uh, fumes in the cockpit, um, they might well have put the masks on uh, because they're concerned about the toxic, uh, possible toxic effects of whatever it is they're smelling, uh, which can be quite insidious. So you don't realize you're being affected. And as we know from various uh, emergencies that have occurred, some of the materials in an aircraft, if they burn, they can release the most awful chemicals into the air, uh, and only a few breaths might be enough to severely impair you. So, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely worth thinking about if you're in a situation where you're unsure, at least one of you go on to oxygen um, as a precaution. They're obviously happy with the situation, or certainly the guy who's working the radio is happy with the situation. I understand if you're confident and you're pretty certain you're going to be safe, then fine and beautiful.
1: I guess in this case, it wasn't maybe a a bad thing for that controller to mention just right off the bat. And uh, just in case, as you mentioned, the crew is so busy with everything going on that they forgot, oh, yeah. Yeah, we should probably be on oxygen masks, but uh anyway.
3: yeah, having said that, if they've done their smoke and fumes drill, it's gonna be there in bold print somewhere. So yep. mm, up to them. They're the that ones handling the emergency. And the proof that of the pudding can- is they got the airplane safely on the ground. So good for
1: them. And, uh, again, this is a, uh, I don't know how, if they had just taken off from Charlotte, and so it's, a, it's a, like very shortly after they've taken off and they're in their the beginning part of their flight, and, well, it doesn't really matter what part of the flight it was. As soon as they get fumes going on and they decide we're going to do an emergency divert, there are a lot of things going on because guess what? All those approaches uh, into the triad uh, aren't loaded in your uh, flight management system, and uh, there's a lot of button pushing and coordination, uh, communication with the uh, flight attendant, flight attendants in the back. I guess only one flight attendant on the 145, um, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff going on, and uh, so I, I think they, uh, from what we can tell from just listening to the uh, ATC live.net recordings, that they've done a pretty, pretty good job of getting the airplane. Uh, down on the ground Absolutely. safely and uh and i think I think that everybody uh, all the controllers at this airport did a fine job of coordination and being as helpful as they could um, you know making or getting this to a satisfactory safe uh ending a happy ending mm-hmm. yeah
3: i'm going to say just one final thing um. Everyone involved in an emergency has heightened awareness. They've got a lot of adrenaline in their bodies, and it's quite hard to um, slow yourself down so that when you enunciate the the vital communications you're going to make between the two aircraft back and forth, you do so in a steady and paced manner so that you don't don't have to have people have repeat it. Uh, And have a little think before you speak. It's very easy just to get into gabble mode. Uh, And I'm not saying I heard that, but there were a couple of miscommunications. And when you're really busy in the cockpit, the last thing you want to really do is have to get the guy to repeat stuff because, you know, you didn't hear it the first time because he was a bit quick.
1: Yeah. And I think that um, it could be just me, but I think that the the first voice we heard on there was a different voice as far as the uh, aircraft communication was concerned, not the controllers. Um, I believe that maybe the other pilot, I don't know which was which, if it was the captain at first that we heard on the radio or the first officer, but it sounded to me like a different voice. And I'm I'm kind of getting the impression that that second voice asking about the ATIS information was the captain. Maybe he didn't hear that first exchange of information with the altimeter setting and all that kind of stuff. Maybe he was communicating with the flight attendant in the back regarding, okay, what's going on back there? Okay, we're doing an emergency divert. This is the plan. And maybe he didn't hear any of that communication and he just wanted to have that for himself say, okay, could you repeat the ATIS information, the altimeter setting? And uh, so I kind of get that um, aspect of what's going on. Again, this is all, we're just, you know, speculating because we don't know for sure. We only have the information that we're listening to here on these tapes. All right, Uh, let's continue then with uh, this next piece of feedback. This one mm, is interesting. Uh, From the Aviation Herald, an Air Moldova Airbus A319-100, so the little short, uh, narrow-bodied Airbus, registration Echo Romeo Alpha X-Ray Mike, performing flight 891 from mm, Chisinau, Moldova, to Rome, Italy was on approach to runway 16 left when the crew initiated a missed approach at about 9.5 nautical miles before the runway threshold. They positioned for another approach to runway 34 left, but went around from below 700 feet. The crew subsequently decided to divert to Bologna, uh, Italy, and were climbing through flight level 160 when the crew declared a fuel emergency, aborted the climb. And decided to return to the Rome airport. The aircraft, however, needed to go around again from about 1,000 feet above ground while on final approach to 16 left. Performed a visual circuit and at uh, 1508 local time uh, landed safely on runway 16 right about 48 minutes after the first missed approach. So we have one, two, three always- go arounds. Um, on December 1st, twenty, and this happened on, uh, November 5th of 2017, by the way, this was, uh, several years ago, almost six years ago on December 1st, 2017, Italy's ANSSV reported after collecting evidence that the occurrence was rated a serious incident and they opened an investigation, uh, on the 25th of this year, 2023, uh, August 25th, um, Italy's ANSV released their final report in Italian only, and we'll save you from the uh, rant from, from Simon that it was only in Italian. Uh, anyway, the report concludes the probable cause of this serious incident were the serious incident is attributable to human factors and materialized in a landing that occurred with an amount of fuel remaining less than the required fuel reserve after three missed approaches to Rome. How do you say F- uh, Fiumicino? How do you say
3: Fiumicino? Fiumicino. Is that the way you say it? Fiumicino.
1: (laughs) Svijaya. Svijaya. Okay. (laughs) A diversion to uh, Bologna initiated and aborted due to intense thunderstorms. The repeated approaches, while a thunderstorm was in progress, exposed the aircraft to wind shear and hazards associated with thunderstorms. The excitement and sudden increase in workload resulted in a lapse of accuracy of aircraft handling and cockpit resource management. (laughs) We're all over the place, with significant deviations from standard flight parameters. (laughs) Okay, a lot more going on than we first uh, knew about here, I guess. Uh, Let's see, the following factors contributed to this incident. Inadequate flight planning, characterized by the lack of precautionary actions in case of arrival in storms. Inadequate flight planning in terms of choice of alternate aerodromes and weather conditions characterized by expected thunderstorms over the destination, as well as the alternate aerodromes, which were all uh, geographically very close to each other. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) if there's a thunderstorm at your main destination airport, uh, probably shouldn't pick an alternate like right next to it because there might be a thunderstorm right there too. Um, A deficient in-flight fuel management decision-making process, which resulted in the attempt of repeated approaches to the destination aerodrome, despite the fact that a violent thunderstorm over the destination and alternate aerodromes was in progress, resulting in the loss of any alternate possibility to head for a suitable alternate aerodrome. Uh, So that goes into a little bit more detail about all the different approaches and missed approaches. Uh, they go into a little bit more detail about the fuel planning and human factors etc but that's that's basically uh the bottom line here and looking at the METARS yeah it wasn't wasn't great weather that day heavy plus tsra heavy thunderstorms uh going on at the airport um uh, during all of these approaches and subsequent missed approaches oh nick what do you think the you know, how did how did this crew do uh on this flight Back in yeah, you know,
3: I, I remember seeing a safety po- poster, and I was in the air force. It used to be up at most places. That the idea being that uh, if you exercised your skill and judgment in the planning of a mission, you really then uh, had to exercise uh, other skills in order to save yourself from a difficult situation. Um, these guys. Less ultimately realised, they got the aircraft safely on the ground, um, doing what appeared in the conditions to be a pretty miraculous uh, visual circuit for heaven's sake. So, um, more power to their elbow, but they did so with very little fuel left. In fact, that they, they were now burning their final reserve, which is thirty minutes of emergency fuel. You hang on to, um, and you you don't use it. You uh, that's that's their in case of the most dire circumstances so because they're now in pretty dire circumstances uh they are burning into it so um w- what would we possibly have done differently well you look at the weather forecasts and you go ah okay i don't like the look of the weather um uh, there thunderstorm generally lost last 30 minutes certainly if it says tempo but um it didn't actually say that for the destination in one of the Uh, meters i don't know what the tafs were giving so we don't know what their actual forecasts were like but um 30 minutes holding fuel would seem to me a sensible amount of additional holding fuel because of the weather and the other thing is if you're ever in doubt that uh, both your destination airfield and your Number one diversion, the nice close one that uh, is very convenient, easy to use, that you're probably familiar with, are likely to be taken out at the same time. You pick a second diversion further away in really nice solid weather and you have enough fuel to get there so that that then becomes your you know, ace in the hole. If it all, my thirty minutes and the weather deviation fuel I've put on doesn't turn out to be enough, I've always got enough to climb up. You know, perhaps forty-five minute transit somewhere that's in nice, guaranteed weather, and I'm good and safe. They didn't seem to have uh, had their their priorities quite right in the establishing of their fuel levels and their diversion airfields. So a couple of errors there having said that they then got themselves in the situation making multiple approaches through a thunderstorm by the description um to try and get to a runway where the the flying conditions would have been awful um they're really maxed out because twice they uh overspeed their flaps in different configurations um and you know, you go well. It sounds like they're having a real problem handling the airplane now because of the the pressure and the workload. And also, I think when when you're in these really difficult flying conditions, the um, the the anxiety uh, sort of settles on you, and you you lose half your brain. So it's quite likely that the broke crew were under severe pressure and were making errors uh, on the flight deck, which is never good Um, and I I quite agree what is the point of making multiple approaches through a thunderstorm when you could climb out uh, and thunderstorms tend to be quite localized so you could probably climb out into a bit of clear air just go into a holding pattern for a little while let everything calm down discuss with your other pilot what your Um, You know, what your actions are going to be now, how are we going to plan this, what are we going to do, how much fuel we got left. Uh, And then when the thunderstorm has moved through, uh, you then make an approach hopefully in much calmer conditions. So a a lot going on there, including uh, an EGPWS warning during one approach, which must have scared the bejesus out of them. Because, uh, you know, that's a serious thing to happen during an instrument approach. In a thunderstorm, <laughs> because they got so low on the uh, on the glide slope. Uh, finally, they got into some weather that allowed them to make a visual approach. So great, they they managed to get it down on their original airport. But I, I sense that the situation on the flight deck was far from calm. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that they made a diversion attempt and then halfway through the climbout decided, no, we haven't got enough fuel to do that. We'll have to go back. Uh, into an area they already knew was bad, uh, and partly because the place they were going to also was bad. So, you know, uh, I'm just thinking, um, put it this way, I wouldn't have liked to have been in that airplane myself.
1: Yeah, I agree. The The Funyuns were starting to line up. They
3: were indeed. Sure <laughs> yeah.
1: They have those in Italy, but um, the Funyuns.
3: <laughs> no,
1: whatever. Um yeah, uh, good point. This looks like everything just started deteriorating rapidly. Aspaloto uh, in our live audience says, I always divert early as making missed approaches choose fuel up fast. Yes, it does. It really, really does. Yeah, I th- I think that uh, yeah, th- there was a lot of chaos going on in that cockpit there, and it was getting hard for them to think straight. And I think that idea that you had, you know, okay. Let's go over here. Let's hold. Let's out here in the clear, you know, away from the thunderstorm. Okay, what are we going to do here? This is our situation. What is the weather going to do? What's the weather like at the alternate? Do we need to find another alternate? You know, and do we have enough fuel to get over the, you know, uh, instead of just trying to keep, just trying to get in uh, on that same approach to that airport and then realizing, okay, this is not going to work. Oh, nope. Now we don't have enough fuel to get to our alternate airport and now we're screwed. Yeah.
3: yeah. You could almost sense they had a very single-minded approach to the situation we've got to land here let's just keep trying until we land uh you know at some point they went oh we can't do it so let's go somewhere else oh we can't do that either now what are we going to do (laughs) so you know you get the feeling that this was not a situation where you had got two minds working in sync um assessing and analyzing and coming up with clear decision paths
1: now, Nick um would you like to read Els um uh, acronym uh
3: Planning prevents piss poor performance. Uh, indeed.
1: A lot of alliteration yes. there.
3: Ah, I love it, Chris.
1: All right. Oops, sorry. Okay. Uh anything else uh to mention on that? Um I think the uh the uh, safety agencies made a um, a good report on the causes of the incident and uh, except yeah, except for the Italian part of it the uh, you know, the final report only in Italian. Uh, Simon's so still kind of upset about yeah, that. Yeah,
3: you can just see from that weather how bad it was because they've got heavy thunderstorms and rain. they've only got 500 meters visibility to the north with cloud down at 500 feet so you know, that's, that's pretty horrible
1: Yeah all right, continuing, uh, we have another final report. This is also from the Aviation Herald. Uh, uh, DALO Airlines? I'm not sure. How do you say that? D-A-A-L-L-O. Dalo. DALO Airlines Airbus A321-100 registration Sierra X-Ray Bravo Hotel Sierra performing flight 159 from Mogadishu, Somalia, to Djibouti, um, Djibouti. Uh, with 74 passengers and seven crew was climbing out of Mogadishu about five minutes into the flight when an explosion was heard. Oh yeah. We all remember this, right? Uh, this occurred back in 2016 uh, with 74 passengers and seven crew, they were climbing out. And I just read that. Uh, the crew stopped the climb, returned to return the aircraft to Mogadishu for a safe landing about 20 minutes after departure. A large hole was seen at the right hand side of the fuselage above the wing Three occupants were taken to hospitals with injuries. One passenger was missing after the landing. Body, The body was recovered near Balad, about 21 nautical miles north-northeast of Mogadishu. Um, so, uh, looks like the French BEA published the final report in July of this year. Um, and it was released by Somalia's Aircraft Accident Investigation Branch. Uh, and they concluded... Um, The crew handling of the situation. Immediately after the explosion, the captain took control of the aircraft. The flight crew followed ECAM messages, applied the adequate actions provided by the airline uh, standard operating procedures. The CVR content shows that the flight crew remained professional, that they reassured the cabin crew and adopted an adequate flight path to perform a safe landing. Uh, The task sharing between the captain and the first officer were in accordance with the expected actions. The communications between the captain and the first officer were professional. This contributed to a safe conduct of the flight and a safe landing. Uh, The actors of this terror attack were familiar with the airport, had good uh, planning and execution of the attack. Uh, Departure, um, let's see, departure had taken place. This is the AAIB uh, summarized captain's report. Departure had taken place with a delay delay of twenty minutes during climb when we were passing ten thousand eight hundred feet we experienced a rapid decompression confirmed by ECAM together with a sound like an explosion followed by a draft of air and smoke which was felt in the cockpit we have requested an emergency return to the departure airport we have followed the company's SOP and landed normally and safely. Uh, so you'll remember that the, one of the terrorists uh, had somehow smuggled a, a laptop that, had a, uh, that was fitted with a bomb and sat over there on that right side um, overwing exit or near the overwing exit and uh, ignited the bomb when they were in flight. And the hole that was made in the fuselage uh, is, is the, um, the method in which the terrorist departed the aircraft. So the rapid decompression, the hole in the side of the airplane, the uh, terrorist went out. And I believe it was the only uh, fatality uh, in this particular accident, incident. Um, Yeah, so basically, I think we all kind of knew that this is what happened. But it's just, it's nice to know, reading the final report, that uh, everybody did what they were supposed to do. They kept calm and acted professionally and got the airplane on the ground.
3: Absolutely. Uh, Credit to um, everyone on board, I think, that no one seems to uh, uh, come under any criticism. uh, And, you know, looking at the severity, of, or certainly the potential severity of someone letting a bomb off on board, big enough to create a hole in the aircraft that looks about, you know, three and a half, four feet tall. Uh, I'm amazed um, how that didn't affect the structure of the aircraft more. Um, you know the uh, it it st- seemed to have remained quite well contained. Uh, in fact, it looks almost like a cartoon image of a of a <laughs> bomb going through uh you know a piece of metal. It's incredible. Um, and uh, you know the yeah, look at it. It's right. <laughs> you remarkable. kind of expect
1: to see like the Acme bomb making company <laughs> yes, and know. like Wiley e. Coyote, you know, somewhere uh, in the
3: Flying out, indeed. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, I, I'm thoroughly impressed with the uh, the airline. Uh, and um, this report seems to, uh, there wasn't a, a no exoneration required, but it just seems to indicate that everyone did their job uh, calmly. I mean, the only thing I think was that I'm not sure if the captain made a PA or not. That's about one of the few things I noted. He seemed to be briefing the cabin crew who made the PAs, I, I, in this sort of a situation, I personally would have quite liked to have heard, even if it's just a few words from the captain, saying, everything's in under control. Please listen to the cabin uh, crew and follow their instructions, something like that, if you haven't got any chance of saying anything
1: else. Yeah. Okay, Brad in our live audience says, kudos to Airbus for maintaining structural integrity absolutely
3: well, I, I agree i wasn't going to say that that right out because you know i don't want to appear too pro airbus but uh, i happen to agree you don't <laughs> Jeff want does to, too. Appear he's, to he's got pro a flag he,
5: what he likes to wear.
3: <laughs> you know uh, boeing have had it all their own way ever since the uh, first airport movie mm-hmm. <laughs> you know these, well, these boeings are built like you know brick built toilet facilities
1: <laughs> very, very good way to put it. Okay, um the now I was looking at this photo that uh, Liz was showing us in the uh, uh on the video here. Um I can see that it wasn't an overwing exit because there are no overwing exits on the A321 series. They have doors uh, forward of the wing and after the wing. Uh so uh but that's about where an overwing exit would be or very close to it if it had been a, another Type like maybe a three hundred and twenty yes. or something like that. Indeed, but uh, yeah, pretty beefy airplane, though. Yeah. It did okay. Its job. It did. It did. All right. Let's uh, continue on with uh, now. Um, Nick, did you get a chance? Uh, Nick Camacho, did you have a chance to take a look at this uh, video or not from uh, mm-hmm. the? Yeah. Um, okay. Oh good. Um, yeah. The uh, AOPA they put out some absolutely excellent. Um, videos regarding air safety. And this one uh, is entitled, uh, well, let's see, Air Accident Case Study, High Aspirations. And it involves an incident that occurred on the 25th of July in 2020. Uh, It was a Piper PA-32 Cherokee Lance. And they departed um, South Valley Regional Airport, which is just south of the Salt Lake City International Airport, Uh, It's a a small, non-towered airport. And the pilot uh, had planned a cross-country flight to Page, Arizona, and then a sightseeing flight over the Grand Canyon from Page. Um, And it was a treat to cap his family's Utah vacation. And the AOPA, Air Safety Institute, um, produced this very, very good video. Um, They examined the circumstances that led to the tragic outcome of the flight just minutes after takeoff. And uh, I, I highly recommend that you view this video, especially if you're a general aviation pilot. And uh, now I'd like uh, Camacho to kind of chime in with the importance of understanding um, density altitude, especially at high altitude airports and when the weather conditions are, are warm or hot.
5: Yeah. So um, basically the gist of this case study was that it was a pilot, uh, Piper Lance, which is a uh, pretty similar airplane to the Bonanza that I fly. It's a complex six-cylinder GA airplane, uh, and they were flying out of
1: I think Page, Arizona. I should have had this pulled up. No, they actually this accident flight uh, started at the uh, Salt Lake. Um, um, That's right. The what was it uh, called? Uh, I'm trying to find that uh, Page, it, West uh, Jordan, Utah. South Valley regional airport. Yeah. Yep. Um,
5: and so, uh, that airport has a field elevation of 4,600 feet and it was, um, 31 degrees C, uh, at the time of the incident. So, uh, hot. Nick or Liz 31 C is about 90 F. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yes.
5: So, uh, hot and high and you know it's important to there are so many factors that kind of um, are intermingled with the aircraft performance you know you got to keep in mind that um, as you go up in altitude obviously uh, the air density um, the air becomes thinner so the air is less dense and so that's a lot of times pilots use a uh, term called density altitude which is basically pressure altitude corrected for, uh, air temperature. And, um, and as you go up and it gets hotter and that air gets less dense, um, essentially there's less air to support the airplane, less air to create lift for, um, you know, similar airspeeds, similar weight airplanes. In addition to that, you have, um, impacts to the engine. So, uh, the, um, I think this airplane may have been turbocharged, so it wouldn't be as um, impactful. But if you don't have a turbo, you know, as you go up in altitude and your engine has less air to breathe, it's basically making less power because you can only make...
3: They called it normally aspirated, Nick. Oh, did they? Okay, so it wasn't turbocharged. Yeah, 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 it doesn't have a turbo. Correct. Yeah.
5: Yeah, so basically what that means is it's just a, a carburetor or fuel injection system, like what is on a car... That you drive, so it's just taking in fuel. I mean, it's just taking in air at the uh, pressure or density of the area around it. And the you know the problem you get into there is, uh, say it's a three hundred horsepower engine or whatever a Cherokee Lance has, um, is I think either a three hundred or three hundred ten horsepower engine. That's kind of based on uh, fuel flow rates and air densities uh, at sea altitude. And as you go up and you decrease the air going into the engine. You have to conversely decrease the fuel to maintain the proper ratio the proper air fuel ratio to make effective combustion in the engine and what that's re- that results in is um, lower performance as you get higher in altitude um, additionally you know the engine is set up generally the engine set up to run um, at sea level or near sea level so in other words if you're t- if you're taking off with a density altitude of six or 7,000 feet uh, and you set the, set the airplane up like you're doing a sea level takeoff with the mixture in the full forward position, you are not achieving that optimum uh, fuel air ratio. So you're actually going to be creating less power. You have to uh, lean the mixture appropriately to uh, create the proper fuel air mixture at that higher um, altitude. So, all these things are uh, factors that go into uh, the performance of the airplane. And then when you're operating the airplane, you know, you've got charts and you've got a whole bunch of uh, depending on mm-hmm. the certification level of the airplane. So, like, in the in something like a Cub or a Luscom or a Champ, there's essentially no performance data because it wasn't required back when they were certified or whatever. But you get a modern airplane um, – like a Part 23 airplane, and you have all sorts of charts. So this is my, uh, the POH for my airplane, and you can see you end up with um, takeoff distance charts, you end up with um, climb charts, power settings charts, and you can utilize all those to uh, determine what performance you can expect out of the airplane, but you really need to make sure that you are uh, factoring in all of the um you know, factoring in all of the intermingle, the the dependencies, I guess you'd say. So you can look at a uh, takeoff distance chart and say, okay, I'm going to weigh 3,000 pounds. And if I weigh 3,000 pounds, it says I'm going to need 1,800 feet of runway. But you also need to go back and figure out, well, if I'm taking off at 3,000 pounds, but I'm taking off at 5,000 feet instead of 1,500 feet, how's that going to affect it? Um if I'm only making 265 horsepower instead of 300 horsepower, how's that going to affect it? Um, and so that's, it's, uh, it's not tremendously common, but it's unfortunately probably still more common than it should be to see uh, people, especially people who are very comfortable in their airplane at uh, lower altitude uh, geographical regions um, getting in trouble when they go on a trip and they, um, get into these density altitude situations and, um, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate, right? Cause it's, uh, a couple of people died in this one and yeah, that's so too bad.
1: Yeah. The, um, when, uh, it's an untowered or non-towered airport. And, um, so they have an automated, uh, information system as far like an ATIS, but it's uh, called ASOS. What does that stand for? Airport?
5: Uh, airport Surveillance Observation
1: System, I think. That sounds right. And uh, so when he first got the information from, about the winds at the airport, they were out of the mostly out of the south. So he chose to take off to the south for a couple different reasons. One, uh, the wind was favoring that direction, and number two, this airport is very close to the Salt Lake International Airport, and underneath the Class Bravo airspace shelf, and uh, it's not very far if you take off to the north uh, that you're going to be in that uh, Bravo airspace and all the um, you know the uh, airliners going into Salt Lake. Uh, so, but unfortunately for him and this his family. Um, between the time he got that initial uh, ASOS information and the ASOS uh, shortly after he takes off in this incident, uh, the winds have shifted now from the uh, more northerly uh, direction. By So it was taking off with like a 10-knot tailwind, in addition to the fact that it was very hot and very high altitude. I think they, they uh, determined that the density altitude was over 7,000 feet. Um, and uh, when you have an airplane that is loaded up almost at its max gross weight. Uh, you know, as, as, uh, Camacho mentions, you know, when they do the certification of these airplanes, uh, this is like on paper and this is like the best performance that you can probably expect from a brand new airplane. (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, your, your mileage may vary and, Okay. Alice Pilato in our live audience says the pilot in this accident used the manufacturer's performance information, but the aircraft did not match the published performance. There you go. So, um, but from what I gathered from this video, and again, I really do, um, you know, advise you to, to do a, uh, a view of this thing and a listen. Um, it sounds like he was a very conscientious, um, pilot. He did all the things that he, Thought he needed to do to ensure that this would be a safe flight, um, but it's just um, you know circumstances were against him. Uh, about everything that could possibly be against you as far as performance is concerned: high altitude, high um, high temperature, and the fact that the winds were um, had shifted from a headwind to a tailwind are definitely uh, you know major factors in this whole thing. Okay. One final comment from El Spilato. I recommend watching all of the AOPA YouTube videos. Lots of good lessons to learn from GA pilots. That is for sure. Yep. I agree.
5: And I also, I think, you know, the comment that he made regarding um, using the manufacturer's performance information, but the airplane didn't match it. I think that's a um, a, a good comment. And I, I think, uh, you know, like I th- reading the charts is good, but I think that the best, um, approach to do this is if you're going to do high altitude flying, or if you're going to do mountain flying, or if you're going to do those things, you know, go out and get instruction with it in your airplane and then, you know, kind of work your way up in your airplane and, and determine what your airplane can do. Um, you know, it's interesting. My airplane has, I was mentioning the charts, but my airplane also has a bigger engine than it was certified with. And it is now certified for a higher gross weight. So I actually can't – like there are scenarios, right, where I can fly my airplane off of the performance charts in my book. And so there's been – you know, we've done some what I would call probably uh, um, very controlled uh, uh, experiments trying to figure out, you know, what the airplane would do. So, like, my airplane was initially – certified to a twenty nine hundred pound gross weight and I can now fly it at thirty one fifty at a two hundred twenty five horsepower engine I can now and now is a two hundred sixty horsepower engine. So when I'm really heavy but have that more horsepower it's it's hard to figure out you know where the chart would actually lay. So we've gone out you know and worked our way up at twenty eight hundred pounds and then three thousand pounds um, and determined you know we'll look at the chart and we'll say, all right so the chart says, the airplane should do this. And then we'd go out and fly it. And, you know, one that comes to mind is we were flying to Oshkosh. I was flying to Oshkosh with one of my buddies while I still lived in California. And we stopped in Santa Fe at two thirty in the afternoon. Uh, and Santa Fe is high. I don't remember how high it is, but it's, it's pretty high. And it was 92 or 95 degrees on the ground. And, um, uh, the, so I was like, ah, maybe we should wait until tonight and let it cool off a little bit. and, uh, my buddy was like, well, let's just look at what the charts say. And we looked at it and we did all the numbers and it had like an 8,400 foot runway. Um, and it said, uh, you know, it said you'll be whatever it was, a couple hundred feet, like per the charts at these conditions, you'll be a couple hundred feet at the end of the runway. And we were within 30 feet. So I was flying the airplane. right? I said, I'm going to fly the airplane, do everything. I just want you to le- like be looking at the altimeter And figure out exactly where we are as we cross over the fence to determine how close we are. And we were within 30 feet of the charts for that scenario. Hmm. So I think that doing stuff like that is important, especially if you're going to do a lot of uh, higher envelope
1: performance things or, you know, put a lot of people in the airplane. Yeah, that's for sure. 6,348.7 feet. That's a very high high altitude airport. I think I have
5: it written down in my logbook. I think that the density altitude was maybe 9,700 feet when we took off.
1: You know, we covered remember. that uh, incident or the accident um, not too long ago about the guy that was in the, uh, I think it was a 310, a Cessna 310 twin, lost an engine. And basically, single engine performance was um, below what the density altitude was of uh, mm-hmm. the airport at the time because of hot and high. And uh, it was almost like he was doomed as soon as that engine failed. Yep, uh, He wasn't going to be able to perform his way out of it. All right. Um, let me get to that page. I'm sorry. Go ahead and read the comment, someone.
3: I experienced this lack of performance for myself as a new pilot, departing out of Grand Canyon Airport in the Seminole with two passengers. I practically had to use thermals to climb away. That's uh, yeah. from Els Pilota. Um, I've got a couple of questions. Not being familiar with this kind of thing, I'm also so familiar with density altitude, but uh, not GA flying. Um, so I, I understood and listening to this, I thought this this guy was a very conscientious and knowledgeable pilot, and because he worked through all the potential hazards, he was. Used to flying in Utah. I'm assuming that's also relatively high altitude flying departures, that sort of thing. He worked hard at keeping within the limits of the weight and performance of his aircraft. You know, He, he went through all the books and did his calculations. And uh, other than, you're right, his, um, the tailwind. But if he's using takeoff speeds, he's got plenty of runway. He was airborne not even two-thirds of the way down the runway. He had a third of the runway left to go, uh, and he could have stayed down longer and accelerated more uh, because as soon as you get airborne, you've got that additional drag of, you know, your wings are now producing lift, and with it comes drag. So if you stay on the ground, all you've got is the friction of the tyres. You could could accelerate and gain more energy. Um, So... um, was he taking off at speeds or a distance down the runway? Because he took off into ground effect. That was the only thing that was really keeping him airborne. And, you know, for those who don't know, it's the kind of um, hovercraft cushioning effect that you get when pressure build up under the aircraft that only occurs within a few feet of the ground. And it sort of gives you a false indication that you're at a safe flying speed when actually you're not. Um, so that seems to be a, have been a, a major factor. So I don't quite understand this. But i tell you what's really getting my goat here is that I come from a world of civi flying where uh, in our environment, Jeff, you and I, we have safety factors of quite a high percentage built into just about every performance figure we ever worked to. You know, in some cases, it's 10, 15, even 50%. Uh, the, this guy has... It got a severe a aircraft and he's working within the limits of his calculations according to the manufacturer's paperwork what the hell is the manufacturer doing giving him paperwork that doesn't take into account other factors that might happen to this airplane over its lifetime i mean isn't there some responsibility uh, that Gives him some guidance as to how much these figures are going to be skewed. I mean, it, it doesn't say. I bet the manual you've got to now for every year of life you've got to take off five hundred pounds off your max takeoff weight, or put this additional factor into the loss of power, etc. It's just you've just got one set of figures, and that's it. I don't understand how you can get away with having an expensive and sophisticated piece of equipment like an aircraft and not have accurate performance figures to work from.
1: What do you think, Camacho?
5: Yeah, I, that's valid. Um, I, you know, I think the problem is it, it's it would be hard for the um, manufacturers to uh, – it would be hard for the manufacturers to define a set threshold, right, of either performance deg- degradation or – Um, the big one is added weight over the years. Right. So, um, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about, uh, when you do stuff to it as an airplane gets older, it just gets heavier. It collects junk in the belly and you put stuff in and, um, it's really common to, um, it's really common for AMPs to, or IAs to, do weight and balances uh, with numbers rather than weighing them, so you can find airplanes that haven't been weighed for twenty or thirty years, and have a significant um, delta between what the airplane actually weighs and what the weight and balance says it weighs. In that scenario, I think it'd be, you know, it would add more uh, work and cost and complexity to owning an airplane. But you know, you could say every five years or whatever, you know, you could have a time period that a weight and balance is good for. In terms of overall airplane performance, I think it'd be a lot harder to uh, quantify that.
3: Yeah, but perhaps just some horsepower figures for the engine. I guess you can probably calculate that, and the aircraft reweigh it every five years or
1: something. Well, here's here's the problem, I think, and uh, there is definitely different requirements um, and standards for safety. Regarding the different levels of flying, you know, obviously public transportation, part 121, uh, has the highest uh, standards. And then as you go down, part 135, part 91, you know, it, it keeps going lower and lower and lower. And I think a lot of it has to do, uh, I could be wrong, but a lot of it has to do with money. How much does it cost to, you know, w- would general aviation disappear in our country if it got? to the point where we kept uh, the general aviation safety standards at the same level as public transportation part 121 flying. I mean, a lot of people would argue that that's exactly what would happen because nobody could afford to, to to operate general aviation if that were the case. But I, I see the argument also for saying, well, I mean, we're still talking human lives here. Um, and you know, we, we need, and there are a lot of people in the general aviation arena who are doing their best to try to, you know, increase safety. Because if you look at the (laughs) figures, how many people, you know, are lost every year in general aviation and and you compare it with the uh, almost perfect uh, record in uh, commercial aviation, at least here in the United States, there's no comparison. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things that a lot of people have a lot of discussions about and a lot of frustration about, as you're expressing, Captain Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the answer is, though. You know, I don't... Well, I'm neither not-
3: do I, really. But it just feels to me like this was a conscientious pilot who did about everything he should have done, and yet he died. And so did a couple of other people.
1: Yeah, a couple um, of people on the ground as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. indeed. So uh, to me... Right, just going, yeah, this is density, you've got to be cautious. But what was the requirement? Did he have to leave one passenger behind or two passengers? Where where does he get the numbers from to decide what is – because once you've you've thrown away the manufacturer's performance figures and now say, well, they're no longer valid, you can't fly to those anymore because you're flying an older aeroplane, where do you get new numbers? Is it all – put your finger in the air and hope for the best. Cause that's what it seems like.
1: What say you, Mr. GA pilot? <laughs>
3: yeah, I, no, I, I no, agree. I don't mean to I, put you on the spot. I, I
1: is, understand what he's saying.
5: Um, so I was just poking around looking for the final report and I can't find it. So I don't know if it hasn't been published yet or I just don't have the Google few, but Google food to find it on the spot here. But, um, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I think there are a lot of other uh, factors, right? Like the use of flaps in that video, we talked about leaning. Uh, So they did make a comment about him uh, aggressively articulating the mixture um, after takeoff, which, and that was one of the things that kind of sounded to me like, oh, he maybe felt like uh, he was not getting the performance he expected. And he thought, well, maybe, um, you know, Filling with the mixture will get me back to where I need to be. Um, so I don't have an answer uh, for your question, Nick. I don't know how we can.
3: Let, let uh, me ask you one simple one. How easy is it to weigh an airplane?
5: Uh, it, it depends on if you want to do it well or, or do it quick. Um, it's, it's easy. I'm just imagining
3: you get three sets of scales and you roll the airplane up onto them and then yep, add add them all together.
5: Yep. Yeah. It's easy. I mean, it's a two hour spectacle. You got to get the airplane leveled, right? So the most important aspect of it is you got to be weighing the airplane level. So it's not quite as simple as just rolling it up on scales, but it's pretty close. Um, uh, I just, man, you know, it's one of those, and I don't know if we'll get to the medical story or not, but it kind of goes to the medical thing again. It's, I, I think a, a lot of GA pilots um, are, are very concerned about the slippery slope of additional government oversight. And so that's why you get um, organizations like AOPA who push very hard saying, let's proactively make things better. So the government doesn't feel like they have to come in and do something because it never seems like it's as efficient when the government comes in
3: and does something. No, I understand. And I, ju- I just was basically opening it up to, you know, a, perhaps a bit deeper discussion about how this poor guy. I mean, I, I just feel so sorry for him. I don't, I don't think he did much wrong. And, he, and yet he's dead. So I just yeah. feel for it.
1: Well, so. Camacho here just mentioned um, a news item in our news segment that we're going to cover next, and this is from uh, the Washington Post. And I'd like to say right off the bat that I know this is being presented as news, and uh, the Washington Post and other news organizations to them, maybe it is news, but if you're a, a commercial airline pilot out there, uh, this is not news. Uh, it's it's very likely that all of you have heard about this happening. I know that I did at my airline. Uh, it's been two, three years or more uh, since uh, we were brought. Uh, this was brought to our attention, and uh, that we were to be careful about how we went about, um, you know, claiming certain things. Uh, and you'll understand what I'm talking about here in a minute when I start reading the story. Um, the headline. 5,000 pilots suspected of hiding major health issues. Most are still flying. Again, this is not news, but it's just, I guess, come to the um, uh, um, attention of uh, some of these uh, major news agencies. Federal authorities have been, and I think that they have the wrong uh, emphasis uh, on this article, too, by the way. Uh, federal authorities have been investigating nearly 5,000 pilots suspected of falsifying their medical records to conceal that they were receiving benefits for mental health disorders and other serious conditions that could make them unfit to fly, documents and interviews show. The pilots under scrutiny are military veterans who told the FAA that they are healthy enough to fly, yet they failed to report, as required by law, that they were also collecting veterans' benefits for disabilities that could bar them from the cockpit. VA, Veterans Affairs Investigators, Uh, discovered the inconsistencies more than two years ago, yeah, way more than two years ago, by cross-checking federal databases, but the FAA has kept many details of the case a secret from the public. FAA FAA spokesman Matthew Lehner acknowledged in a statement that the agency has been investigating about 4,800 pilots who might have submitted incorrect or false information as part of their medical applications. The FAA has now... Um, closed about half of those cases, he said, and has ordered about 60 pilots uh, who, he said, posed a clear danger to aviation safety to cease flying on an emergency basis while their records are reviewed. About 600 of the pilots under investigation are licensed to fly for passenger airlines, according to a senior U.S. official familiar with the matter, who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Ah, I did it again. Anonymity. anonymity why do i have so much trouble with that word who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss an ongoing case most of the rest hold commercial licenses that allow them to fly for hire including with cargo firms corporate clients and or tour companies experts said that the inquiry has exposed long-standing vulnerabilities in the FAA's medical system for screening pilots and that the sheer number of unreported health problems presents a risk to aviation safety While pilots must pass regular government contracted health exams, the tests are cursory and the FAA relies on aviators to self-report conditions that can otherwise be difficult to detect, such as depression or post-traumatic stress, according to physicians who conduct the exams. Many veterans minimize their ailments to the FAA so they can keep flying but exaggerate them to the VA. Uh, to maximize their disability payments physicians and former officials at the agency say um, this is a quote from an aviation medical examiner in Colorado Springs he said there are people out there who I think are trying to play both sides of the game uh, they're being encouraged by the VA to claim everything some of it is uh, some of it is almost stolen valor and that's one of the most important paragraphs, I think, and quotations in this article. So it goes on to talk about different things that could prevent or disqualify a pilot from flying or getting a medical, uh, class one medical. Um, So, okay, so here's the bottom line. Many um, of the uh, commercial airline pilots out there um, are uh, former military pilots, and some currently uh, commercial airline pilots and at the same time flying uh, in the reserve. So, current military and current commercial airline pilots. Um, but I think the ones actually, not sure that this applies to the ones that are still currently flying for the military and the reserve function, because I'm not sure how the whole uh, VA disability thing would come to play with that. But let's just say I, as a former military pilot, uh, get hired by a major legacy U.S. airline, which is true. That's what happened with me. Um, if uh, I claimed uh, when I left the service that I had all these things, these ailments, these disabilities, uh, guess what? I get extra money um, uh, possibly. I think maybe uh, this mostly applies to uh, guys that have retired. Now, if you're in the chat room, the live audience, maybe you can help me out with this uh detail, but, uh, it's never been a factor for me. I never filled out a form for the VA claiming disabilities like, uh, depression or, uh, back issues or, uh, whatever. Um, I've never, uh, I've never seen that form. I don't know why. Maybe it's my situation didn't, didn't require that I declare anything because nobody uh, from the military has paid me a red cent since I, I retired, no, well, not retired since I left the military back in, um, uh, back in 1988, 1989. so I'm not sure exactly the what's happening here but there are a lot of pilots that uh, have had the opportunity to get money and some of it's a significant amount of money in disability from the Veterans Administration um, like over three thousand dollars a month um, for um, some of these disability uh, payments um, but they're uh, reluctant to uh, reveal, these disabilities when it came to getting their FAA medical certificate. And as that um, person mentioned there, that AME, he said, I think that a lot of this is guys trying to play both sides of the fence, that they're almost encouraged by the people representing the military or the VA when they are getting out to go ahead and claim all these things because you're going to get a nice big check. Um, but not thinking about, you know, what the consequence might be uh, if, uh, it was discovered that they were essentially lying when they filled out their information on their FAA medicals uh, because it's a requirement that you declare anything uh, like this on there. And if you do declare that, guess what? <laughs> and then the AME has got his hands tied behind her, her tie, hands tied behind her back. Uh, I can't issue a medical certificate because of this thing. So I honestly – I know that the the angle of the these articles that have just been recently released and, and called news is, oh, we have all these people out there, thousands of pilots out there that are flying these airplanes full of passengers and they are not medically fit to fly. I think that it's actually, they are fit to fly. It's just that they're trying to game the system so they can get a bunch of money from uh, uh, Uncle Sam. And, uh, th- and that's my personal opinion. Again, it's not, the, it's not the personal opinion of all those involved in the Airline Pilot Guide podcast. I'm only speaking for myself. But that's what I suspect is happening here. That um, it just like, well, everybody else is doing it. So I'm going to click on uh, check the box. It says I have a backache. I have, you know, a little a slight depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. I have all these different things going on because, you know, that extra money every month could really, could really help a lot. Um, now, some uh, people are in this situation and be investigated, have uh, the argument, well, um, you know, this may be a legitimate disability, and I, I legitimately deserve to get this money from the, um, from the United States uh, government, but uh, I don't think that it's anything that is going to prevent me from operating uh, Part 121 airliner say, uh, unsafely or pre- prevent me from You know, operating it safely. Um, And I I think that in some cases, maybe that article, uh, that argument can be made. But uh, as I said, me personally, I think that you got to be careful about what you're. What you're doing, that, doing there when you're filling out paperwork, and your what you're doing when you go to a, a get your medical examination. You know you have to be, and I know that Captain Nick, you've mentioned this several times on the show when it regards um, medical examinations uh, for the CAA and the and uh, and the FAA, and you know how important um, you know being a healthy person is to operating these very complicated, very expensive. Um, you know, forms of tr- public transportation.
3: Yeah, it's not like you're driving a car down the road with, you know, your mate beside you, and if you uh, have a medical problem that causes a crash, well, you might kill yourself, you might kill your friend. In our circumstance, we've got perhaps 100, 200, or 300 or more innocent travelers behind us when we're doing commercial flying. And there's a huge responsibility on us to be honest about our medical conditions. Anything that might uh, interfere with our ability to do our jobs properly um, is obviously a huge concern uh, in particular to the company you're working with and the general flying public um, at large. Um, I, I do understand the temptation to try and play the game, but if, you, if your aim is to get into a major legacy airline like Captain Jeff and earn the big bucks, is it really worth trying to make a few extra dollars under the uh, door, you know, on the quiet by uh, lying, when it could ultimately affect your very uh, lucrative uh, airline pilot career in the future? No, of course not. Why would, you, why would you take the risk of getting a few extra bucks in one hand and risk your primary aim to get that fantastic job in the captain's seat of a big airliner for a big airline? Uh, and uh, that that's what we all aim for. So don't take the risk. Don't try and play the game. Be honest and upfront. That's what everyone expects of an airline pilot um, because, you know, your integrity is part of the job. How can you be uh, an honest and upright airline pilot if you're quietly lying to people, you know, in the, in the background, it just, the two just don't go together. I'm sorry.
1: Not in my book. I think that um, Camacho kind of alluded to this in our last news article regarding the high aspirations in the government and the, Safety requirements and standards when it comes to general aviation and bureaucracy and everything else. And I think part of the problem is that because the U.S. government is such a huge behemoth of a bureaucracy, uh, the years and years and years and years of this going on um, encouraged people, hey, people have been doing this for years and they're getting a lot of money and nobody's ever been – you know, questioned about it. And then all of a sudden, uh, a, a, couple, a few years back, uh, somebody said, you know, what about this? You know, I think that they're in you know, and somebody started doing some investigation and putting some resources behind finding out if there was a mismatch with uh, the, the health of people leaving the military and the health of people, you know, actively flying in the airlines. And they thought, wait a minute— Looks like there are a few discrepancies here, and I think that's what's happened. People were led down the primrose path of thinking you are throwing away this money if you don't check these boxes. And as, I, as the article also mentions, I, I have not had this experience myself, but I think that a lot of people would say, "Yeah, I mean, they're telling you, dude, you are an idiot if you don't check these boxes because you are going to get the extra money." You know, so I think, but you are right. Uh, it's it with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, especially if you're one of those who was being investigated for perhaps withholding uh, 100% of the truth, uh, you probably look back and think, yeah, that was kind of dumb. Yeah, I made this much money, but I probably could have made up for that amount of money I'm getting from the government in just a couple of months salary at the big, you know, major airline that I'm flying for. And now it's going to possibly end. Now I think to be fair uh, to the, FAA, I think they've done a really good job, uh, as far as I can tell, of contacting these people and say, hey, we we think there might be a discrepancy here. You might want to, uh, we're going to revoke your medical certificate and we're going to go ahead and, you know, have you reapply, go back and, you know, to your AME and see if you can sort all this out. And I think that they were giving a lot of these people uh, the benefit of the doubt to actually correct the situation and uh, continue to regain their medical certificates and to continue to fly safely in the airlines.
3: Well, well, that's good because, uh, you know, people may not have realized there may be lots of attenu- uh, attenuating. No, what are the word I'm looking for?
1: Extenuating.
3: Extenuating circumstances. Thank you. Uh, Liz, very
1: quick there. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, that was me. <laughs> I don't, I don't. Hey, I get don't I get credit for <laughs> yeah for, for, exactly for coming up right. with the word? Usually, I have to wait for Liz yeah. to tell it to me, but uh, I actually came I up know. with that on my own. <laughs> oh, I was very impressed. Um, Thank you. Yeah, before
3: and not just being in the guillotine down. So yeah, good for them. But uh, yeah, uh, it, if you're in a responsible job and you're well paid, you don't need to do this kind of thing.
5: Yeah, so a couple of comments I was going to make on this are, um, so first of all, they, th- they throw out these huge numbers, right? Nearly 5,000 pilots, and then the next artic- next line says investigating about 4,800 pilots. And then they say 600 of them are ATPs, and not active ATPs, they're licensed as ATPs, right? So in reality, we're talking about, I don't know, three to 500 pilots, which is a lot, mm-hmm. right? But... So I look at this article and I see, all right, 42 to 4,500 second and third class pilots, private pilots, commercial pilots that don't have a huge, um, a very powerful union to help guide them through this process. And the FAA medical process is a train wreck in our country. Um, It is. It is. (laughs) It is very difficult to get any clear answers prior to doing anything. Um, it, it's really common for somebody to not even realize something is an issue until they go and report it on a medical. And then it requires a special issuance, which now is taking months or half years to get, um, you know, and the FAA is slowly changing, very, very slowly changing, but they have to, because our legislature has been really active in, um, trying to modernize the approach that they take for, um, you know, medically certifying pilots. Um, Twenty years ago, they instituted the sport pilot rule in the United States, which basically allowed you to fly a small subset of airplanes without having an FAA medical. You're basic; it's basically called self certifying on a driver's license. So, it's more to it, but essentially, if you you feel like if you're healthy enough to drive, you're healthy enough to fly these little airplanes. Uh, five or six years ago, I think they instituted basic med, which uh, basically opened up most of the small to medium sized general aviation airplanes to pilots, um, who still have to pass one medical at some point in their life, but then, but then can go through this process of self-certifying with standard doctors rather than having to go to FAA AMEs. Um, and I just, I get, I, so I know nothing about the VA side of this thing. If there is um, governmental waste or if there is uh, fraud involved, I, I, I'm definitely not for that. Um, but from the FAA medical side, I just feel like um, if you ask, if you had the opportunity to ask all 4,800 of these people, if I had to guess, like half of them. Applied for something in the VA that they did not even realize was a disqualifying. And it may not even be a disqualifying issue with the FAA. The FAA is just looking into it. Yeah. Um, you know, the FAA, FAA wouldn't even let you see therapists until four or five years ago. And so that's one of the big pushes for all of this, um, for all of these, uh, I don't know, medical modernization or, you know, because uh, pilots would be... <laughs> Super awkward timing, Jeff.
0: <laughs> well, um, I don't
5: know what you're talking about. You know, pilots would get in these scenarios where they're like, oh, is something wrong with me? Is something not wrong with me? And they'd have to make a decision um, whether they want to, like, go to the doctor and di- disclose that and try to get treated for it, which may save their life or may not have any impact on them. Right. But they don't know until they talk to the doctor or they have to say, well, but the FAA won't let me keep flying if I do that. Um mm-hmm. So I do feel like there is a that that was my whole in that was my whole my frustration with this story in this situation is that um, I think a lot of people look at it like, oh, it's it's you know governmental waste and fraud, which I, probably there's some involved, but man, I feel like we could fix a lot of it by fixing our medical system here in our country.
1: I agree. I think that a lot of people that are involved with it would uh, agree as well. Um, it sounds to me like the the system that uh, Captain Nick was um, involved with uh, when he was actively flying seemed to have a different approach as far as being a little bit more understanding of certain issues you might suspect that you're experiencing and may or may not be something serious. And I don't know, that's the impression that I get that, you know, for for several years, Nick, at the end of your career, when you were experiencing various medical issues, it seems like if we took that situation and put it over here in the U.S. with the FAA um, medical um, evaluation system, um, I just made made that up, medical evaluation system, the FAA MES mess. Um, <laughs> if I know so, known uh, what you mean, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, I think that, that things would have been different. I mean, you know, you, you may have been out for quite some time trying to plead with the FAA and prove that you were fit to fly, whereas it seems like the uh, CAA medical system, is, is that correct, would it be the CAA or the uh, whatever uh, the yes, indeed. authority was, yeah. were, were, it seems to me that they were much more they were They would work with you all a lot more than it seems that 's happening over well, here in
3: they the, certainly in had system. that uh, I had that impression with everything that I went to them with. however, I must qualify that by saying that it was in the process of changing and becoming um, considerably more privatized uh, as I was leaving the airlines so what 's happened over the last three three and a half years i 'm not sure, but I do know that a lot of the medical expertise within the CAA has now been outsourced. So I have no idea uh, what the current situation is. I'd love to hear from some current pilots uh, who might have experience of it, but uh, just to bring me up to date.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the takeaway for me, uh, Neil is saying, um, he's from the UK, is Jeff implying being Canadian is a disqualifying condition? Them's fighting words. Well... (laughs) How did how did I imply that? I'm not sure (laughs) exactly.
3: Every time, oh, I see. Okay, a a major incident, a Canadian pilot somehow involved. I'm not quite sure why,
1: or Canadian aircraft. One or the other. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so the thing, the takeaway for me, I agree with Nick that that uh, we got to figure out. Oh, uh, well, all of them. I, I agree with every darn <laughs> Nick that's out there listening at this <laughs> at this moment. Uh, that uh, that that our system, uh, our you know, the FAA uh, medical certification system, or whatever. Uh, and I'm, I'm I don't know what the official term would be, but it needs to be fixed. And I think that there are some people out in there that are trying to do that, actually. And I just, they just got a long way to go. And the other thing that's frustrating for me, this whole thing, is, of course, our old, you know, aviation journalists or journalists that cover aviation or whatever, that uh, just don't seem to understand or grasp completely what what's important about this this information that we're putting out there. And I think sometimes they they jump to the wrong conclusion and maybe it's on purpose. Yeah. To make it more sensational. Uh, that might be, you know, it sells more magazines or newspapers or I guess, you yeah. know, the, the, those things exist anymore, but they probably sell more advertising on, on the internet or something. I don't know. But, um, anyway, I, um, I think, yeah, there's a lot of improvement to be made. Yes. Uh, Camacho,
5: I, I was just going to mention, we didn't mention that because, uh, I just saw this come out a couple of days ago, but uh, avweb also ran an article set that said that the FAA has revoked 60 pilots certificates Mm -hmm. so far. Once again, we have no details of, right. We don't know if that's airline pilots. That's not really very useful, but no, um, it's just another one of those, right. The 5,000 goes down to 4,800 goes down to 600 Mm -hmm. and now we're down to 60. So,
1: yeah, so far. All right. Well, uh, with that, uh, we're going to quickly head over to getting to know us segment um, because. OK, um, Camacho, do you uh, need to head out anytime soon here?
5: Uh, I can probably hang for a little bit longer.
1: OK. OK. Time of the show where we get all caught up with what we've all been doing between shows. And we're going to start with Camacho, Nick Camacho. What have you been up to, sir?
5: Uh, So, let's see. I missed last week's show. Uh, I did make a crew log. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, So, I was on, I guess, uh, when Armando was on, which was two weeks ago today, I think. Um, Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, He was sitting right next to you, right there, to your left.
5: I know. I was super bummed because I, obviously. Oh, because he was sitting next to you? No, no, no. no. I understand. Oh. it's great that everybody I gets to. It's great that everybody got to uh, experience Armando on the show, but he had an early flight, so we got to chat for like twenty minutes after the show, and then he had to bail out of here. Oh, whereas if I would have sorry, ignored you guys, uh, yeah, you
1: could have kept him all to yourself. Yep.
3: Yeah, indeed, <laughs> um, share
5: him uh, with
1: the world.
5: Uh, but anyway, yeah. So uh, that following weekend, uh, Cannon and I, my older son, went up to the Kansas City Air Show. Um, which was, which is actually in Gardner, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City. It was a hundred and eleven degrees driving home from that air show. Um, it it was—I'm not gonna lie—it was kind of a miserable experience. They had um, like no hangars. Um, so our air show here in Wichita, they have it at our air, the, at the Air Force Base here, and they usually have two or three of the hangars open, and they have like kids' activities set up in one of them, and. Basically, like you can have a respite from the sun in there, right? Well, this place didn't have any any shade structures or hangars. Didn't even have any big, um, any large static airplanes to sit under. So we uh, we basically toughed it out on the ramp uh, all day to watch to be able to catch the Blue Angels at the very end. That was the whole impetus for going. we seeing the Blue Angels. Um, it was a little bit more, I think Canon liked it cause there were lots of jets. We saw the F 22 demo, uh, heritage flight with the F 22, the F 35 flew, uh, the blue angels. Um, for me, the only warbird that was involved was a Mustang flying the heritage flight with the F 22. So that was cool. But I like to, I like to see a few more warbirds. Um, uh, but yeah, we survived, <laughs> we survived that, uh, got home. I spent, uh, all last week, um, working on tow bars. I mentioned in the last show that we're building up tow bars for the big uh, Stearman air show in Illinois. We got all those done, so that's done and ready to go a week ahead of time, which is pretty good for us. Um, Excellent. Uh, so let's see. I, I actually booked a my airline ticket out to that show. So I had a few other. I was waiting on a few things. It looked like the po- there was a possibility that we were going to fly the C forty seven to the air races in Reno. But uh, that didn't really materialize. Um, there were a few other things that I was kind of waiting on, and uh, everything kind of fell apart there towards the last uh, <laughs> the last few days of, of last week. So um, I booked a airline ticket up to Peoria, Illinois, which is the closest airline service airport to uh, the National steerman Fly-In at Galesburg. And so I'll get to uh, be up there for a couple of days with my folks while they – Solar tow bars and talk to steerman people. So I'm looking cool. forward to that. If anyone's gonna be at the air show, any Stearman people, um, let me know and we can try to meet up. And then, um, as many of you know, I have had engine trouble with my airplane, which resulted in ordering a factory rebuilt engine from Continental Motors, and we uh stroked that painful check on Wow, uh, July twenty fourth. Was it was it that terminal the issue you had, Nick? So yeah, the problem is, um, or the problem was <laughs> that uh, the engine that I had was the original engine in the airplane. So many of the rotating parts had very high time on them. So like the crankshaft had been reworked a couple of times. The crankcase was a two generations old crankcase. So. Normally, where an overhaul might cost, um, you know, I don't know, 60 or 70 percent of a factory rebuilt engine. In my case, an overhaul was going to cost like 90 percent or more of a factory rebuilt ah, okay. engine. And, uh, wow. and they say the factory now. rebuilt, but it's mostly new parts. So I kind of looked at that as an opportunity yep. to reset yeah. everything. Zero time. Yep. So. Well, um, well so that will
3: last you a year lifetime. That's what I'm hoping.
5: Yeah. That's what I'm hoping okay. because I don't think my wife will let me buy a new airplane engine. So, I'll have to. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting rid of the airplane. Once this engine expires, hopefully it's like in 30 or 40 years, not in like the next two or three. Uh, but anyway, so they told me at the end of July, I actually ordered it the Monday of Oshkosh and they told me I'd been talking to him for about a month. And when I started talking to him, they quoted me two to four months lead time. When I ordered it, he said, yeah, we're quoting three to five months lead time now. Um, probably closer to five. And he said, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of Oshkosh, we're up to four to six months on the lead on the
1: quoted lead times. Is this company you're dealing with uh leisure travel Vans? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Cause it sounds, uh, sounds really very familiar, doesn't it? Yes. It well,
5: is. but hold on. So we haven't got to the, we haven't got to the punchline yet. <laughs> right. So I'm trying to lay out my life and I'm like, all right, so, you know, three months would be October, uh, that's probably not going to happen November, December. I was like, if I can have the airplane flying by the end of the year, I'll be happy. I'll plan on getting the engine at the beginning of November. So I'll spend all of October doing all the little stuff to the airplane. I want to do getting it ready for the engine. And when I get the engine, I'll be able to drop it in, uh, on Friday, they emailed me and they were like, your engine's done. It's test run and it's sitting on the dock. Please send us the rest of our money. Whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, uh,
3: yeah, that, that's great until you suddenly realize, oh, I need the money now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yep,
5: that part of it, right? Had all these little projects I wanted to kind of do. Um, so much for that. And kind of like yeah. sneak them in here and there every couple of weeks. Uh, and it's, you know, I've talked to a couple of my friends and they're like, well, you know, it, the airplane doesn't have to fly. You get the minute you get the engine. You're much better off receiving the engine in September and letting it sit in the hangar for a month. And putting it in the airplane versus, like, having the airplane ready to go. And then they, they like get February better with
3: or age or something. <laughs> they don't. Um,
5: <laughs> but I don't think that, like, that short of a duration on a new engine, I don't think would be a big deal.
3: Okay. I thought it might be like a wine, you know. The longer yeah, you leave yeah. it, the better it'll be.
5: Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's the opposite. It's like cheese. Yeah, you leave cheese out and it gets moldy and horrible. Yeah, you know?
3: <laughs> Well, you don't want a moldy engine, no.
5: So yeah, that's what's going on with me. Um, and then, so I decided, uh, you know, to Nick's comment, uh, I start. I thought, well, you know what? This would make an interesting plain tale, or not a plain tale. Interesting crew log. It turned out cool. not interesting, super dry and super boring. And I thought I could cover all the stuff that I was going to cover in like ten minutes. And I talked for like thirty minutes a few days ago. And I was like, well, I got like halfway through everything I needed to say. So
1: if you're interested... <laughs> Welcome you, to podcasting. <laughs> yeah,
5: and you're a Patreon. You could go listen to the first part of like all the diagnosis and all the issues that we had. And then I'm going to talk about uh, on the next crew log that I'll try to do today or tomorrow, I'll talk about the options I had, like, like uh, to Nick's point, you know, the factory rebuilt versus getting my stuff overhauled versus getting mine repaired. I also could have repaired my engine. Um, unfortunately, that adds zero value to the airplane, and it was still like 50% of the cost of a new engine. All so,
3: right. Okay. It sounds like um, you made a very sound decision, Nick.
5: Well, we'll see.
1: Very expensive uh, one, at least.
5: Yeah. Oh, Tim Van Ram asked real quick, Tim Van Ram asks, when ordering a factory rebuilt engine, do you then have to return a core? You do. That's another thing that helped me make my decision. So generally, when you buy, so you can buy a factory new engine from Continental, which is just a new engine, and you just buy it, and then they send it to you. When you buy a factory rebuilt engine, you have to send them your core engine. A core engine is just its just an engine, right? You send it to them, and instead of rebuilding your engine, you're just giving them all those parts. They'll rebuild it and sell it to somebody else down the line. That kind of allows the exchange process to... Of
3: course, what you don't know is they just take a wire brush to it, clean it up a bit, and post it straight back to you. Spray paint. Well, so what I found out is
5: <laughs> when you order a factory rebuilt engine from continental this is according to um the beach the bonanza tech advisor that i've been working with a lot and the actual continental guy um when you order a factory rebuilt engine it's like 80 or 90 percent new parts they actually only reuse a few of the parts oh wow um but you you generally have well, to say they send... got
3: a great big museum at the back there of old uh, engines
5: yeah i guess <laughs> i don't know so i guess it's a i guess it must be like a liability thing so huh? when I ordered my engine in June and July, they were actually running this thing called Core Amnesty. So usually you have to send in a either a running core or a complete core. When I sent mine in, they gave me a list of like five or six things. And they were like, to get core credit, you need to return the case, the crankshaft, the fuel pump, the uh, cam and crank gears, the turbo if it had one, and the logbook. So... The logbook's kind of weird because obviously they're going to reuse the logbook. So I was I was wondering if that's just like a liability shield that they kind of do. To they're like, oh well, if we're selling an engine and we can get an old engine out of circulation, it's less likely for that to cause us
1: issues down the line.
3: But I don't know. Yeah, I, I would say so.
1: Interesting. So as as uh, Nick just mentioned, um, uh, crew log uh, awaits you if you are a patron of the show. One of the little perks that we have. Um, well, it's pretty much the only one, <laughs> other <laughs> other than uh, just the uh, just being able to have that uh, joy of uh, supporting our our show, you know. Oh, but,
3: and uh, a one to one with Jeff every now and again.
1: Yeah, if you, if you want, you know, any you know uh, out there, if you uh, are contributors and part of our coffee fund cadre, that you just call me up anytime or text me or whatever, and we can. You have access to me. You I don't know why you want it. Well, yeah, or I could give you, you some bad advice. if you phone with
5: leisure buses, you could be his therapist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I might need to talk to you about that. Yeah. I need somebody to talk to. <laughs> I don't know. What has the other Nick been up to?
3: Uh, not very much. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, nice and quick. Um, got through to one game in the club finals. So uh, this is our big weekend where we play competitions throughout the year. And then the final uh, competition is held on finals day. but uh, So I won through uh, the handicap singles. Uh, I haven't worked out what my handicap is yet, but actually I've got a handicap of four shots. Uh, so I was playing against a good bowler who had a handicap of only three and just managed to beat him, but that's nice. So that, that'll give me something to do on finals day. But uh, bowlers are always, uh, you know, it's the most dangerous Game in the world. More people die playing bowls than doing anything else. And I've just been to another bowler's
1: funeral, <laughs> <What>? I'm afraid. <laughs> wow, <laughs> another, another one down.
3: Yeah, another <laughs> one fell off his perch. Exactly. Uh, which was such a shame. Leon was uh, a stalwart of my very first bowling club. And he uh, was a great builder. He was uh, used to teach uh, bricklaying. And indeed, he built almost single-handedly uh, our clubhouse rebuilt it in brick so he was a fantastic old fellow lovely chap uh and uh, i had to go to heathrow airport um it was only to drop off my son who was going off to uh uh calgary for the weekend uh, oh, how did that and- that go? Well, he seemed to enjoy himself. He came back with the most appalling hangover, so I think it went well. (laughs) But um, I I discovered to my dismay that um, Heathrow is now being included in the low-emissions zone that is part of uh, the London sort of low-emissions zone. And uh, I drove in and out blithely going, oh, yeah, I wonder what that is. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, Gilly uh, had to go and pick him up today. And, and I said, well, my car's quite new. I should be all right. Uh, well, how about yours? And she came back, was straight onto the internet going, oh, I don't know. Uh, but no, she's all right. <laughs> and uh, I did pay the drop-off fee, uh, Pilotto, but I, just within about an hour and a half of the cutoff, <laughs> I nearly forgot a second time. Because uh, when I dropped you off, Jeff, I forgot to pay my fee, so I got fined. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh yeah, don't worry about Sorry. it. Sorry, um, that was my silly fault, uh, and um, I, I but I remember with Doug, and uh, so it was only a five, no big deal. So that's been daylight robbery. You're quite right; really annoys me. Um, but there you go. Uh, it should be nice if they sent you a reminder saying, "Oh, you've just been in and done this." Can you pay us? But they don't. No, they, they get more money if the they don't weeks. tell you. Yeah, exactly. They're horrible <laughs> people. I don't like them at all. Um, and uh, do you want me to go straight on to the uh, cover-up while I'm sure. on the air? Yeah, well, why not? We're, not? we're not planning uh, on booting well, you, you can off see, the part, air, Nick. You can, see, <laughs> <laughs> you can see part of the germ of the idea behind me, uh, the tank that um, I took a picture of um, in – the uh, the Duxford uh, airfield the uh, the Imperial War Museum there which is a, a British tank called the Comet the uh, A34 introduced towards the end of the Second World War uh, and took part in the invasion of Germany and regarded one of the best British tanks of the war um, albeit it took a while to get it in uh, into service it played a key role in the development of the later centurion which we always loved. anyway quite amusingly the um, tank had been named um the gyneolator and i went well i know what gyne is at least i have a vague idea what gyne is what's a gyneolator anyway um we use that in in the part of the title for the uh Cover up because I discovered a gynia later is someone who has a passion for women uh don't most of us have a passion for women, but indeed, and um someone suggested who was it do we can we remember who suggested it uh It was someone like I boxes. Oh, box always Tim van Ram wasn't it actually. Now, nah, Tim Van Ram it usually comes Iron up with Iron the bad Moxers. ideas. Okay. <laughs> yeah, suggested the Garnier Leiter's Love Four Plane, a little play on the word plane there. So I had to invent cover art that involved an airplane with a four plane and a man in love with it. So that's what you ended up with. By the way, um, the, uh, the uh, show um, icon is in the HUD, Mm -hmm. head-up display. The APG is in the little red uh, cover that's uh, covering up some of the sensitive instruments there. And uh, the show number is where the no-step word is written on the left-hand, the port foreplane. So there you go.
1: Okay, let's see here. See if I can do this. That's the starboard Um, foreplane. Oh, wrong side. Okay,
3: sorry. Said so the actress to the bishop.
1: Oh, I see APG right there. Yeah. Ah, okay. And then, I see, yeah.
3: And yeah, you've um, got, you, your cursor's right on it. There you go. Zoom
1: in there. Ah, we got 582P. Uh, yeah. Got you
3: it. Go. Well, it says wow. no step originally. So now it says no 582.
1: Ah. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. All okay. right. Let's I thought she had, had a very
3: sec- sexy-looking pair of lips. That uh,
1: that yeah, that's for sure.
3: That typhoon. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, hang on. I uh, had something yeah, set up Jeffrey, before, want to and uh, uh, let's see here. Um, oh, I have to share a tab. Here we go. And um, let's see if you could uh, display that, Liz. All right. No, um, the, I'm sharing my screen. Got it? Are you sharing it? Ooh. Okay. This
3: looks like a former
1: president's hairdo. All right, look at that. We got that, uh, that hurricane out there. I got, I'm sorry, I can't hear you, Liz. I got the window open, and I'm trying to see what the conditions are like outside. It's kind of windy. I don't know why. Uh, that cow flying by. <laughs> oh Is it man! A hurricane so, uh, or a typhoon? <laughs> it's a hurricane over oh, here right. in, in, in our part of the world. It's a hurricane. Hurricane. And uh, oh, I see. You with the typhoon, gotcha. I'm sorry, I'm a little slow sometimes. Maybe most of the time. Um, anyway, so. As you can see from this uh, live um, radar uh, return of uh, uh, Adalia or Adalia or I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce the name of the thing. But uh, it's uh, made landfall and it's making its way through, uh, looks like South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. Uh, Stuff going to be affected. Looks like they're getting some some heavy rain right now in Charlotte. I don't think she's out there uh, dumping jumpers uh, right now. Uh, but it looked like um, we did get some of the uh, outer bands last night. Some pretty heavy rain, but today it's been actually relatively decent weather here. And you can see, we're right at the edge here of um, of the uh, of the storm. So, anyway, just an update on the uh, weather. If you're uh, interested in that kind of thing, yeah, I'm safe and sound here now. If I can just That's find the way you thing.
3: get a, you probably get a very good. Uh, forecast terminal forecast for Atlanta Airport but it'd be probably worth taking a bit of extra fuel just in case
1: <laughs> yeah that is true and I'm sure that all the flights that Acme operates had extra fuel to uh, just in Indeed. case right and I, you know what yeah. one thing uh, about I, I really do not like getting a terminal forecast.
0: <laughs>
3: always a, always a I could give you one if you like.
1: <laughs> That's okay. CFI Chris and our live audience just finished sheltering with a tornado warning from uh, the storm here in Charleston, South Carolina. Wow. All right.
3: well,
1: I'm glad you're okay, Chris.
3: Indeed. Um, Indeed. All right,
1: so I'm going to go over here and see if, was there anything that I wanted to talk about? Oh, I do want to play some audio from Hillel, and I, you know, I haven't even listened to this yet, so... This could be a little uh, – uh, okay. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and press the button here. This is uh, from Hillel in Melbourne with Evan Shue.
7: I don't know how this is going to work because somehow either. I'm supposed <laughs> to make it from Jeff's bathroom to Australia and back again. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to happen. But for those who haven't figured it out, this is Hillel, and I'm not in the bathroom at the moment. I am actually outside <laughs> Melbourne, Australia with our good buddy, our mate, Evan he, he, Evan just took me on a little flight to go look at some sites around the bay down here in Melbourne, Australia, or outside of Melbourne, actually. And uh, we wanted to go see the city, but it was all fogged in, so we ended up staying out. But I'm going from Mel- from, <laughs> to let you hear from Evan and then, you know, get back the phone. Hey,
3: everyone. It's uh,
1: awesome to see Hillel down on this
3: end of the neck of the woods, as we say, um, and it was good that we could go for a fly and grab uh, MBF, Matt Bunting-Frame, and he was able to jump along and come with us. So, yeah, the three of us headed down to the um, Mornington Peninsula, and we did a run along the beach and saw the um, the heads, and uh, I introduced Hillel to the craziness that is Morabbin Airport.
7: Yeah, The airport here in is um, quite a busy little airport. They've got twin parallel runways. uh, That's two pairs of parallel runways that they all intersect. And then there is this crosswind runway that intersects them all. It is kind of crazy to look at, actually, and rather confusing. Um, I almost thought we were going to land at the wrong runway for a second, but then I realized that Evan knew what it was doing. So, (laughs) um, sort of, close enough. At least we landed. and we could use the plane again. And... um, but it was a lovely time to come down here. I spent the morning with a client and then took an Uber down to Morabin Airport. And um, it's uh, it's really interesting. And actually, for those of you who uh, make your way down here, make sure Evan takes you to this pretty cool motorcycle um, haven. Not even sure what this place is called. It's a
0: motorcycle Cafe, they're
7: called. Who's?
3: Motorcycle Cafe.
7: A very interestingly named Motorcycle Cafe. Yeah,
0: it's called
7: the Naked Racer. The Naked Racer, aha. Uh-huh. But they've got motorcycles everywhere. They've got a great little museum inside. And uh, so we had a drink. We're having a bag of crisps. And um, pretty soon, Evan's going to probably kick me out and drop me off at a train station and be done with this mad bathroom running person. Anyway, so that's it from me. This has been already longer than I meant. And I'll let Evan sign off.
3: See you, everyone. Thanks for coming
1: this side of the world.
7: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Evan, for the flight and for the company in the afternoon. And uh, I'll have to find another excuse to come down to Australia some other time. Everyone, have a great whatever you're doing. Bye.
1: <laughs> Man, Hillel is worse than I am when it comes to hogging the microphone. Uh, so very nice to uh, hear from you, Hillel and Evan. Uh, barely hearing from Evan there in the uh, audio feedback, but uh, it was nice to hear your voice. Is Evan a little shy? I don't think so. I think it's more um, Hillel just. It's uh, oh, you know, like this, the whole, microphone. this whole, this whole oh, Hillel, uh, bathroom thing and slack has gotten to uh, Hillel's yeah. head, well, obviously. The
3: fame, the fame he's achieved I know. with uh, I Quite <laughs> incredible.
1: Great to hear from you guys down, uh, down under in uh, Melbourne. And uh, let me just go back here to Evernote, getting to know us, Note. And looks like, oh, I should announce that uh, Paul from Youngstown, Ohio, uh, Paul Juracek, uh is having a Toronto APG meetup, uh, yay, uh, in September, uh, halfway through September, September 15th, which is a Friday at 4 p.m. Uh, he says, uh, until about 10, wow, six hours of uh, aviation talk and uh, merriment uh, at the Craft Beer Market uh, at 1 Adelaide Street, East. And that's downtown Toronto. Okay. He has made a reservation at the craft beer market under his name, Paul Eurocheck. I think I'm saying that right. You, uh, Y-U-R-I-C-E-K. I never use his last name because I can't pronounce it apparently. And if anybody wants to contact him, uh, his email, and I'm assuming that he's given us, um, authority to, or, or permission to share this with you. Uh, his, his email address is P- P A U L J Y. So P Paul J Y at gmail.com. And that'll be in the show notes. That's probably the best thing to do. Just look for it there. And you can click on it and make contact with Paul if you happen to be up in the Toronto, Ontario area uh, on September 15th, because he'd love to meet up with you. And uh, it would be great if you could join him and then you guys could record some audio or video or whatever and send it in and we can share it with the rest of the community. So thanks, Paul. And uh, with that, I think it might be time for us to play this week's Plain Tale. Oh, Coffee Fund. Yeah, I need to do that too. Thank you, uh, Liz. We're going to go ahead and do some Coffee Fund uh, first. Here we go. I'm all discombobulated. Combobulated here. Okay, here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A, 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 a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Come on, you guys in the back channel, you can sing along too. Come on. Um, all right. Coffee Fund is your way to sh- support the show financially. Only, only if you have the financial resources to do so. And why should you do that? Well, you get to listen to uh, Nick Camacho and Captain Nick and others with uh, periodic crew logs. And uh, But the best part of it is you can have that really, really good feeling that you are supporting something that you believe in the Airline Pilot Guys show and we do appreciate that and a couple different ways to do that one is the OG method the uh, Coffee Fund Classic method and we have a nice contribution, a very generous contribution from Stan Call I think he calls himself uh, Stanimal uh, so we have uh, that uh, contribution from Stan thank you, we do appreciate that and um, let's see, the other way to support the show financially is to become a patron via patreon.com And uh, you just basically pledge a certain amount per episode. We usually have four or five episodes per month. And uh, yeah, more information about that can be found by heading over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Okay, so uh, Control Room is directing me to uh, play this episode's plain Tale. And so without further ado... Take it away, old pilot.
3: Yes, sir. The Old Pilot's plain Tales When History Repeats Itself In the tale, the Applegate Memorandum, I describe the difficult birth that McDonnell Douglas had with the DC-10 when its safety record was permanently marred by a cargo door design flaw that plagued its introduction. Sadly, this wasn't the only issue that was going to discredit the aircraft in the eye of its passengers, and they would ultimately condemn the world's first three-engined wide body as a dangerous failure. Although the aircraft's problems with its cargo doors could be firmly laid at the feet of McDonnell Douglas, the next disaster that the aircraft would have to cope with was not of the manufacturer's making but of some operators who took it upon themselves to shorten engineering procedures. Five years had passed since the cargo door of Turkish Airlines Flight 98 blew out, which ultimately resulted in the loss of everyone on board. 346 perished, the deadliest air crash in history at the time. Then, on the 25th of May 1979, a DC-10-10 of American Airlines, Flight 191, departed Chicago, O'Hare's International Airport, bound for Los Angeles. Robert Graham, the supervisor of maintenance for American Airlines, was watching the massive aircraft depart, and he recalled,
7: As the aircraft got closer, I noticed what appeared to be vapor or smoke of some type coming from the leading edge of the wing and the number one engine pylon. I noticed that the number one engine was bouncing up and down quite a bit and just about the time the aircraft got opposite my position and started rotation, the engine came off, went up over the top of the wing, and rolled back down onto the runway. Before going over the wing, the engine went forward and up just as if it had lift and was actually climbing. It didn't strike the top of the wing on its way. Rather, it followed the clear path of the airflow of the wing up and over the top of it, then down below the tail. The aircraft continued a fairly normal climb until it started a turn to the left. And at that point, I thought he was going to come back to the airport.
3: In the captain's seat of November 110 Alpha Alpha that day, was a very experienced pilot who had been flying the DC-10s since their introduction eight years earlier. He had over 22,000 hours and was qualified on 17 other aircraft including the DC-6, 7 and the Boeing 727. His first officer and flight engineer were also seasoned veterans. To them, the takeoff had appeared normal, until they heard a thumping noise and alerted to a problem, the first officer exclaimed, "Damn!" But that was the limit of the cockpit voice record as the CVR’s data, as it then ceased to function when its power failed. It had been a good weather day and the crew weren't anticipating any difficulties and the first officer's exclamation came just after the captain called rotate indicating that the first officer was the pilot performing the takeoff however just prior to that white smoke or vapor had been seen coming from the area around the number 1 engine the engine on the left-hand wing As the nose lifted during a rotation, the entire number 1 engine and pylon assembly came off the aircraft and flipped over the wing, falling onto the runway. Coincident with this, power to the CVR and Digital Flight Data Recordings, DFDR, from the left-inboard aileron, left-inboard elevator, lower rudder, and number 2 and 4 left wing leading edge slats ceased or other parameters continued to be recorded power for the voice recorder and those dfdr inputs all came from the aircraft's number 1 ac generator bus fed from the number 1 engine the aircraft became airborne about 6000 feet down the runway but its flight would only last 31 seconds. It lifted off at six knots above the V2 safety speed, the speed at which the aircraft may safely climb with one engine inoperative during the takeoff phase, with the left wing slightly down, which an application of right aileron and right rudder corrected. The big machine continued a steady 14 degrees nose-up climb at just over 1,000 feet per minute, with the speed reaching 172 knots. At this stage, all looked good. Some other electrical systems had ceased to function, notably the captain's instruments, his stall-warning stick shaker, and the leading-edge slat disagree warning. In addition to the number one electrical buzz failure, which could have been recovered had there been time to run an appropriate emergency drill, several other systems relating to the number one engine's disappearance were affected. The number one hydraulic pump, powered by the missing engine, failed, but the system continued to operate through a backup pump driven by the number three system. However, as the engine somersaulted over the wing, it had damaged the leading edge, severing hydraulic fluid lines that powered the leading edge slats on the left wing and, crucially, locked them in place. Unbeknown to the crew, since the slat disagree warning was now inoperative, under the effect of the air loads impinging on them, the outboard wing slats on the left side began to retract. At the same time, the first officer was correctly following his company procedure, a procedure that would subsequently change, which stated that, following an engine failure, he should climb out at V2 speed until reaching 800 feet above field level or obstacle clearance altitude, whichever was higher, then lower the nose and accelerate. Indeed, his flight director was programmed to demand a pitch attitude that would achieve the V2 speed. Therefore, quite correctly, he held an attitude that allowed the aircraft to decelerate at about 1 knot a second, from 172 knots to the target V2 speed of 153 knots. As the aircraft's speed reduced unbeknown to the crew, with the left-wing outboard slats retracting, the stalling speed of that wing was increasing to an estimated 159 knots. The stage was now set for a disaster. As the DC-10 reached 350 feet and 159 knots, Without the stall warning that the captain's stick-shaker would have offered, the left wing reached and then passed its critical angle of attack and started to lose lift. The aircraft began to roll and then turn left despite increasing attempts to counter the manoeuvre through the use of right rudder and aileron. As the roll increased, the nose began to drop from its initial position of 14 degrees nose up until, when the aircraft was partially inverted at 112 degrees of bank, Flight 191 reached an attitude of 21 degrees nose down. As the crew fought to maintain control of their doomed aircraft, it is possible that their 268 passengers and cabin crew shared their horrifying view of their last few seconds. American Airlines had equipped their cockpits with a closed-circuit television camera, which, via screens in the cabin, gave a live view of the flight deck over the captain's shoulder. When the aircraft hit the ground, the impact was horrendous. Large sections of aircraft debris were hurled by the force of the impact into an adjacent trailer park, destroying five trailers and several cars. The DC 10 also hit an old aircraft hangar at the edge of the airport at the former site of Ravenswood Airport, which was used for storage. The aircraft was destroyed by the impact force and the ignition of 21,000 gallons 79,000 liters of aviation fuel that was stored nearby. No sizable components other than the engines and tail section remained. Everyone aboard the airliner plus two workers on the ground perished, leading to a death toll of 273, the deadliest aviation accident to have ever occurred on American soil. Following the previous DC-10 mishaps, this crash received widespread media coverage but also because of a dramatic photograph taken moments before the impact that was published on newspaper front pages. There was little doubt as to the main cause of the accident and much speculation as to what caused the engine to separate from the wing. However, the loss of an engine should have been a survivable event since all airliners were certified to fly safely following a critical engine failure, if not perhaps the complete separation of the engine. The NTSB investigation followed two paths, one to establish why the engine pylon became detached, and then why the crew subsequently lost control. While the investigation was going on, Two weeks following the crash and whilst under intense public pressure, the head of the FAA was called to testify at a House hearing. Before the full findings were published, he then took the drastic, unprecedented and damning action of suspending the design certificate of the DC-10 indefinitely, thereby grounding all 138 of the aircraft flown by the nation's airlines. McDonnell Douglas called this an extreme and unwarranted act. Following the FAA's lead, other countries followed suit and around the world, DC-10 sat idle on the ground. Soon after, the NTSB established that the engine detached because of the failure of the pylon attachment fittings. When the fittings failed, the thrust of the engine forced it forward, pivoting around the front attachment point up and over the wing, until that attachment also failed. It became obvious that the bolts within the pylon fittings had fatigued and failed because of damage inflicted on them before the accident. Further investigation revealed that this damage had nothing to do with McDonnell Douglas's manufacturing techniques or design criteria but was due to the airline's own modified maintenance procedures. McDonnell Douglas stipulated that in order to remove an engine and pylon for inspection and repair, firstly, the engine should be dropped from the pylon, and then the pylon could be removed. However, American, Continental and United Airlines had all developed a faster and cheaper way of completing this procedure by removing the engine and pylon as a single unit. The manufacturers' field service representatives working with the airlines advised that they would not encourage this procedure due to the element of risk. However... They did not have the authority to either approve nor disapprove the maintenance procedures of its customers. In the case of November 110-Alpha-Alpha, which had undergone this procedure earlier in the year, the American Airlines mechanics had some difficulty with their approach to the engine removal. They elected to support the vast engine with a large forklift truck, whilst the pylon was disconnected. The positioning of the forklift was crucial, and in this case they made a little error which allowed the engine to rock slightly, and then, halfway through the job, there was a shift change. Whilst this was occurring, the forklift had been turned off, and the weight of the engine forced the forks down as hydraulic pressure bled away. This resulted in undetected damage to the attachment points, which, although insufficient to cause an immediate failure, led to fatigue cracking, which worsened over the next eight weeks until they finally gave out. The findings concluded that the loss of the number one engine was due to improper maintenance procedures conducted by the airline. The left-wing stall was caused by uncommanded retraction of the left-wing outer leading-edge slats, compounded by the loss of the slat disagree warning and the stall warning. Out of interest, McDonnell Douglas offered stall-warning stick-shaker systems for both pilots, but at an additional cost, which American Airlines had declined. This accident opened a proverbial can of worms that shook the industry and the regulators. The FAA convened a safety panel to evaluate the design of the DC-10. The results were perhaps not quite what they expected, as the panel highlighted critical deficiencies in the way the government certifies the safety of American-built airliners focusing on a shortage of FAA expertise during the certification process and a corresponding over-reliance on McDonnell Douglas to ensure that the design was safe. Both manufacturers and airlines were blamed for focusing on the letter of the law and not creating a safety culture within their organization. Regulations were issued to ensure that stick shakers would be provided to both pilots and that vital devices, such as slats, had mechanical locks. Forty years later, when the issue of the MCAS system in the Boeing 737 MAX, which led to the disastrous crashes of two aircraft and an enormous loss of life, were examined parallels were drawn between the situation in 1979 and 2019. The DC-10 loss had brought to light the need for system redundancy, crew warning systems, rigorous certification, a lack of oversight and expertise in an under-resourced regulator. The very same problems that became a crucial part of the 737 MAX debate. There were several wiring parallels concerning the introduction of both aircraft. The timescale for the production of both the DC-10 and the MAX were planned to get the jump on competitors, so delays were unacceptable, and when concerns were raised, safety took a back seat to exigence. Design features that might have met the letter of the law fell short of best practice. In the 1980 committee report on the FAA airworthiness certification procedures led by a former NASA administrator is found the comment... Of greater concern, however, is the identification of what appears to be a trend towards placing more and more reliance on the manufacturer in the course of type certification. Towards the end of the certification procedure, for instance, the designees submit large amounts of reports and calculations to their FAA counterparts for approval while the requirement to make such submissions has value in assuring airworthiness, in most cases the FAA staff performs only a cursory review. Four decades later, the Joint Authority's technical review would issue a remarkably similar final report on the 737 MAX MCAS system they highlighted signs of undue pressure on the Boeing staff responsible for regulatory approval and which it said may be attributed to conflicting priorities and an environment that does not support FAA requirements. These regulatory personnel included engineers with limited experience and knowledge of key technical aspects of the 737 MAX programme. Overall, they concluded that this resulted in an inability of the FAA to provide an independent assessment. Both the 737 MAX and the DC-10 were considered to be in full compliance with federal regulations, but neither manufacturers built as safe an aircraft as they could have. It would appear that 40 years is too long for corporate memories to hold the concepts of a truly safe culture.
1: Another excellent plain tale by the old pilot.
3: I hope a thought-provoking one.
1: Yes. Yeah, uh, very um, frightening similarities there in the, uh, yeah, a lot of parallels.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Mayman Micas made a point, uh, but uh, I don't think it was one that really made a vast difference in the argument put forward that what, uh, perhaps the manufacturer 's need is greater supervision uh, from the regulator, and that the regulator is under equipped to uh, give the sort of supervision that you might expect, uh, particularly when introducing uh, you know new aircraft uh, into the industry quickly. I, I love uh, doing these things, but I n- or often need help. And uh, when it comes to producing uh, a, an understandable American accent, <laughs> I didn't want to turn this into yet another joke. Uh, so I must thank Greg Willits, uh the fantastic voiceover artist, friend of the show, and lovely person for helping me out yet again. And uh, if any of you are listening and you want that cool voice, doing a voiceover for you, just uh, go to his website, please. Uh, Greg Willits. uh, Oh, golly. GregWillits.com. We're going to be in the show notes.
1: Uh, I I don't know. Guaranteed.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know it before me right now.
1: Uh, Neil, Lanworm in our live audience says, I always thought letting any manufacturer self-certify was a terrible idea.
3: Well, yeah, yeah, I know that's where it comes down to the nub, doesn't it? Because uh, you know... (laughs) You've got uh, people who are actually employees of the company, often serving two masters. They're uh, they're working for uh, an aircraft manufacturer, but they also have the job that the FAA have given them, which is to adjudicate as to whether something is safe or not. I think that, personally, I think that puts them in a nigh-on-impossible situation, uh, particularly when something is of marginal safety, uh, at a marginal safety level. Uh, and also, uh, you know, the manufacturer may not be releasing all the information they have as to, um, you know, what has occurred uh, and whether this particular um, item is, um, you know, as, as uh, well designed as it could be. And I think that's the problem. You know, when you're trying to put an aircraft onto the market in order to beat a competitor, the idea of delaying it a few months to get something just right uh, is not a very appealing uh, option.
1: All right. Thank you. There is gregwillitz.com. What a handsome uh, website! Chap. Yeah, he is a, a handsome chap. And there are more information about uh, Greg and his talks and... Speaking real and all about him. Voiceover work uh, a little bit further down here. And
3: uh, anyway. I hope to write so, a testimonial. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I don't see anything uh, from you. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think you'd probably publish it, but uh, the, work he's, the work he's done for Plain Tales has been exemplary over the years.
1: Yeah, he, uh, he's a great, he's a very, very talented, very creative uh, person and a uh, good friend. So, yep. all right. Uh, Thanks, Liz, for sharing that. We are going to do one feedback item, and then we're going to wrap it up. And so I guess we need to do this. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's uh, look at this item from Ham Radio Jim. It's been a while, Jim. Uh, He says, uh, long time, starting to get interested in the number of issues with Boeing's 737 MAX products.
3: Hang on a minute. Again. I've seen that picture somewhere before. Have you? It's a… Yeah, well, I'm sure I have. Is it not the one I just put up? No, slightly different. A little different.
1: Anyway. uh, Anyway, that's great just heard about the Transport Canada Directive regarding the limitation of using engine anti-icing in dry air for too long, over five minutes, due to possible overheating and apparently warping of the blades. That in turn may cause damage to engine cowls. That creates an interesting balancing situation for the pilots. Add to this information, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there should be some kind of a system to automatically turn it off <laughs> after a certain time, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, you're not supposed to operate uh, engine and ice in dry conditions. But sometimes we turn it on and we forget to, that it's still on. Indeed. And we go, oh, I guess we could turn it off now, now that we've been flying in dry air for the last half hour. Um, add to this information I got recently from chatting with a Southwest Airlines B737 MAX pilot friend who tells me they need, quote, extra time to spool up their engines. Uh, This might feed into some recent near-miss incidents where ATC clears a MAX onto the runway for takeoff with another jet on relatively close final. A normal jet would have plenty of time to throttle up and get airborne, but apparently the MAX jets need that extra time to spool up uh, before proceeding. This would force the competent pilots to refuse their takeoff clearance where the impatient pilots might say, Okay, let's get the heck out of here. Geesh. On the surface, these seem to be finicky little things, but they could create serious problems. No? What do you experts think? Uh, Best, well, I don't know. We have any experts? Uh, I'm sorry, they've all gone. Just just (laughs) tapped a Nick and I here. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, Best uh, to all of you, Ham Radio Gym. I'd like to say... I think you know your little chat, uh, not little chat. Your chat with the Southwest Airlines seven thirty seven Max pilot friend of yours um, may may have uh, what he was trying to express might be the fact that these newer engines on the Max, um, I think they're geared turbofan engines, and they are uh, both the Pratt and Whitney version and the um, and the GE. I think those are the two out there that are the big ones, right? The uh, geared turbofans. Anyway. They require a lot longer time to uh start and to warm up uh before they can operate normally. And I, I I'm not I think it might be a stretch, honestly, to associate uh or infer some kind of connection with the incidents with the uh uh for instance the one in San Francisco where they said they needed more time or whatever, uh, to, or wherever it was, uh, to, you know, before they can go for takeoff. Um, I, I don't know. Again, I, just to me, it seems like maybe there was a misunderstanding that it, they don't, I think once everything's all warmed up, everything, the, um, the response time for the engines to spool, again, I could be wrong about this because I'm not, I've not flown an airplane with these new engines. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that's the, the factor there, but again, I could be wrong.
3: No, I, I, I agree, uh, Jeff. Um, I mean, no doubt about it, the, uh, the sophistication of the big engines um, often requires them uh, to spend some time um, just turning and burning to, so that all parts get to the correct operating temperature. And it can be an embarrassingly long time. I, I You know, we used to do single-engine taxi out, and you had to – try and work out how long you were going to have to wait before you got to the end of the runway um, and start up your remaining engine in plenty of time because, uh, you know, if you've got an embarrassingly quick lineup, you might still have two or three minutes to wait until you'd gone through the minimum time required before you were allowed to put the engine to full power. So, um, yeah, that uh, that was a factor Uh, And the more sophisticated these engines get, the bigger they get, the longer it takes for these to have an, you know, for these procedures to be fulfilled. In addition to the problems of, you know, going out in icing conditions when the visibility is low and the temperature is low, um, you might have to sit at the end of the runway and do ice shedding procedures uh, to clear ice off the big blades. Uh, So, you know, all these things are just part of the professional um, job uh, and you have to sort of build it into your uh, plan for just something as simple as taxing out and taking off because uh, you know uh, you have to be very aware sometimes of the length of time it takes to get these things going yet your airline is very keen for you to only start one up at a time and try and save some fuel uh, so it does get difficult, but w- whenever we had a delay because we would need to be on the runway say ice shedding uh, with the engines at seventy percent or you just needed uh, another sixty seconds to get the temperatures up to sorry the engines up to temperature uh, we always let air traffic know so if they gave us a lineup clearance we would go um we're going to need we'll a certain be, yeah we'll be on the runway for thirty seconds prior to rolling Oh, something similar. Uh, In which case, they'd say, Roger, cancel your lineup. You know, we'll let this guy land and you can go in behind him. Which, you know, what what does it matter in the big scheme of things? You've two minutes difference on your flight time. So, not a huge thing. But uh, yeah, um, I I know that these engines have problems. All engines have these niggles. We went through all sorts with Rolls Royce Trents, particularly with Ice Crystal. Uh, adherence to the blades at high level, where we didn't expect icing. It would normally be outside the normal icing temperature band, and you wouldn't even worry about it. All of a sudden, we found it was a factor. Uh, So, yeah, we're learning more about it. The technology is progressing all the time, and it's providing a different layer of knowledge
1: required by the pilots uh,
3: to take all this into account.
1: And I know this is something that we hardly ever talk about on our show, but good communication is important, if not Indeed. critical. Uh, so, yeah, as Captain Nick just said, you know, if, if they tell you to line up and wait, be ready to go, then you might want to say, well, it's going to take a little extra time, you know, to get the engine yeah. warmed up or whatever we have to do. Just communicate. That's that's all we ask. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, it is time for our wrap-up of 583. Oh, I don't want, want to stop. I'm well, we can, you know what? Going. Nick, let's just do this. Uh, yeah. After we end the broadcast, you and I can sit here and we can just continue, like pretend like we're still doing a show. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> oh, <what a> great <laughs> otherwise, idea. otherwise, there are a lot of people here that are going, you know, you've used three hours of my precious time already, almost. Oh, yeah, anyway. my life. And uh, yeah. hey, I have a life, you know? Yep, but nobody's holding a gun to your head, people, you know? So, uh, but if I could, I would. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We want to point you to, dear listeners, our website, airlinepilotguy.com. Lots of good stuff on there to check out. And we are on social media, media, or what I like to call the social meds.
3: Yeah, indeed. If you're a Facebook person, or what is now called Meta, uh, we need to change that uh, little thing, please. (laughs) Uh, Just search for Airline Pilot Guy, all one word. And uh, Mm -hmm. on X, which used to be called Twitter, at APG Crew, which is very similar to our Instagram uh, handle, which is just APG Crew.
1: Okay. Now, if I go to Facebook, I still see everything here says Facebook, Facebook Facebook.com.
3: Ah, yeah. Yeah. the head honcho company is now Infinity Symbol Metal. Well, that's
1: not the way we do it here. We don't do the head companies. We is do that the, right? Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, you I can mean, call we're, it
3: face plant if you like. Were
1: weren't you at the production meeting that we had pre-production meeting, uh, Captain Nick? Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Production meetings. We, we don't have them. <laughs> Never mind. Or the rehearsal. How about oh, the goodness. rehearsal? No, you weren't at the rehearsal either, and we didn't have one of those. <laughs> but. I don't know. It takes some time for uh, you to fly from Melbourne, Australia to... Oh, wait a minute. I hear him. Hang on. Hey. Hello? Can you uh, help us out with some information about Slack?
7: APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack.
1: All right. Thank you very much, uh, Hillel, for joining us today and making that trip back from... Yep, yeah. um, trying to find something clever to play here.
7: I need a towel. I got shampoo in my eyes.
1: Uh, okay, <laughs> that wasn't funny. <laughs> wow. um, anyway, we, we do. We ought to be serious here. We do. We, we, we really do appreciate the hard work that uh, Hillel puts into managing that uh, very unruly Slack uh, team that we have. And uh, so if you want to check it out again, just uh, do what Hillel just told you to do, and uh, he'll set you up. And with that, we want to take the time now to thank our producer, Liz Hi. Piper. Hi,
3: Liz. Thank you, Liz. Now we can't hear Now well, speak to uh, us, Liz. Don't you mind, nah,
1: She's just not speaking to us anymore. No, nah, she's saying that. Nah. Huh? Forget there it. I'm moving Very on. Lovely. Oh, oh there better. she is. My phone
0: was ringing. <laughs> so I didn't want you to hear that.
1: Ah, anything. the phone Very was cool. ringing. Okay. I'd like to use that excuse. For every mistake that I've made today, it's because my phone was ringing. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Probably not.
3: I'm ringing. <laughs>
1: I'm. I'm singing. And ringing. And ringing. All right. And uh, so thanks, everyone, for hanging out with us, especially those in our live audience. We do appreciate it. Hey, uh, follow us on uh, the social medias, and you'll find out when we're recording this live. We might Can have I, some I've been
7: updating now. the calendar regularly,
1: too. You have. Wow. Thank you so much for doing okay. that. And uh, again, um, wishing you all, well, can't wait to see you again next week. I'm wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless.
3: Thanks, Jeff. Bye, everybody.
0: Happy Labor Day to those who are going to have a nice long weekend this coming weekend.
3: But y- oh, if yeah. you're going to give birth, you have a special day for it. Right.
1: There should be. Yeah. should be like a week.
3: <laughs> who would want to give labor for a week. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, he's up in the sky. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy i fly a letter. Oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy oh! fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying. I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy i fly, uh.